Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly sponsored by Aviation Advertiser, Australia's largest online marketplace. Make buying and selling easy by doing it online. Aviationadvertiser.com.au And by the GA8 Airvan, proudly manufactured right here in Australia by Gips Aero, gipsaero.com And by Jetride Australia. Be a top gun for the day. Visit jetride.com.au slash pcdu for the fastest ride in the country. And by Pracy Racing. Proudly flying the Aussie flag at this year's Reno Air Races. Show them your support at praceyracing.com. Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 73 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australian Pacific point of view. Well, sitting back here in Australian Eastern Standard Time, finally, I'm Steve Fisher and joining me as always is Grant McCarran in the same time zone once again. G'day mate. Hey mate, how you going? Well, I've been home a week, or nearly a week, and I think I'm finally getting my sleep patterns back into uh, back into alignment. Ah, well, you just needed a couple of cans of mother and a few beers at night. I tell you, it worked wonders for me. My sleep patterns were sorted within a day. Oh, there you go. Well, contemplating that from Central Standard Time in Adelaide is Baz Sheffers. G'day, Baz. G'day, how are you? Well, I'm very good, mate. Now, uh, you've also uh, been back a couple of weeks now from Oshkos, so uh, all settled in, all happy back over there in Adelaide? All happy back here, happy back at work, and... Uh... Uh, just keeping busy. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I can detect a lie a mile away. Happy back at work, eh? Happy back at work. Mm, we'll work on that. Well, of course, you know, as we record this, I've still, you know, I've got back from Oshkosh and, <clears throat> well, I have another week off, so there you go. You suck, Visha. <laughs> I went to the office the same day I got back in the country. <laughs> I was in at 6 o'clock in the morning on the Thursday and I was in the office by about 11 o'clock. That's either dedication or desperation, or both. Well, I, had, I had to stay awake till uh, 8 o'clock at night somehow. My cunning plan to kick jet lag required it. Well, uh, it's been a couple of weeks now since Oshkosh finished, Air Venture 2011, and we've all had time to collect our thoughts, hopefully, and we're gonna, going to uh, have a bit of a discussion in this episode about uh, our impressions of Oshkosh, all our first time there. Uh, what an overwhelming experience, guys. Um, we thought we'll have a bit of a chat about that. And a bit later on, we're going to uh, run an interview that I recorded down in Arkansas, which uh, you'll really enjoy. The audio is not the best, unfortunately, but I tell you what, if you are ever curious about what it's like to uh, be a Cold War warrior in the United States Air Force and uh, perhaps have your finger literally on the trigger, you'll want to catch that interview and that'll be coming up after the break. But guys, let's have a talk about Oshkosh. Let's talk about how we made it over there to start with. Well, Steve, I guess the best way to start it off is that you and I jumped on a V Australia 777 and flew our sorry butts all the way from Melbourne to Los Angeles in one long haul, finally arriving after a mega marathon. That is a long trip, and uh, tell you what, the um, it, it never seems to get any easier the odder I get. Uh, Baz, you went over by Qantas on a 380. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, it's especially a long trip if you're on a crappy old aircraft like you, but you're on a, on a nice new one. <laughs> oh, on a nice that old. I don't know, the 777 was pretty new. On, on, a, on a nice new design, not like a refreshed one, <laughs> on, a, on a really nice new design, for five minutes you think, hey, this is a great new aircraft, and then it's just not a plain old airliner, and you just, just sit there for 15 hours uh, trying to survive. <laughs> another human mailing tube. Yeah, you know, and another award-winning new entertainment system where, where the headphones go <laughs> through the entire movie. Oh, I love so, that. 
Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a quality product again. <laughs> I have to say, it is indeed a lot quieter than anything else I've been on. A triple seven is pretty quiet, especially compared to the old seven fours. But uh, the three eighty is very very quiet, which is nice. Oh, I'm not down the back. A triple seven is pretty noisy when you're behind those engines. I tell you. Uh, yeah, I was sitting uh, ooh, about two centimeters in front. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it wasn't wasn't very uh, very noisy at all. So that was. Uh, it's a, it's a good, it's a, you know, it's a good aircraft, but you know, it's not a revolution. It's a slight improvement over the previous generation. All right. So then uh, we all, by sheer coincidence, met up at Los Angeles there, and we uh, crammed ourselves into that god awful seven three seven of American Airlines. You know what? I don't think I'm ever going to fly American Airlines again if that's the standard of their aircraft. The aircraft was dirty. Uh, the seats were incredibly narrow, and um, you know, their flight attendants were frankly not even all that friendly. I was really disappointed with American Airlines. What do, what do you reckon? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't good uh it was a pretty old airplane i, I was lucky that i was uh, probably had the best seat out of the three of us yeah you um, had a window yeah and i didn't didn't have a big bloke next next to me so that was good as well and i um, was the big bloke next to everyone else yeah i know <laughs> and uh so can't complain too much about it got a bit of sleep even uh, in on it or a bit of dozing but it's a pretty long flight to be in a 737 yeah and it's also those middle seats they are look i gotta say that i'm pretty i've sat in middle seat on an exit row and a number of 737s and that was definitely the narrowest it, it reminded me of a flight in a 727 where uh, one of the pilot friends of mine was telling me that apparently uh, in the middle row you have less room than uh, the first astronauts did in the mercury space capsules and this was where i remembered that and yeah i thought those seats were long gone but amazing to find they're still there yeah it was um it was really disappointing but uh, to be honest with you guys i was so jet lagged by then i think i Actually, uh, well, according to Grant, uh, I blacked out for most of it. So with with my head lolling back and my uh, my mouth wide open, but I didn't care. I was sleeping. So there you go. <laughs> I do recall looking back because it was Baz in row twelve, me in thirteen, and you in fourteen. I think all on the same side of the plane. <laughs> and I do remember looking back and seeing you gone. You were completely asleep in the chair directly behind me. Anyway, so we arrive there at uh, Chicago, and we meet uh, none other than uh, than Mr. Jetwine himself, Rob Mark, and we uh, we headed off to his place and basically took over his office for three days. Well, I was there for three days, and uh, you guys were only there overnight because uh, you got to head off and do the Bonanzas to Oshkosh stuff. So uh, let's talk about the flight and the Cirrus. Uh, Baz, did you end up getting any stick time? Oh, uh, yeah, just a little bit, a little bit of straight and level, but it was uh, it was still good. It was a uh, you know it was great just uh, going for a quick uh, fly and. Uh, seeing uh, how easy it is to fly around the U.S. without uh, air services getting in your way. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, there's a quite a few airports, isn't there, uh, between Chicago and Rockford, and really Rockford is probably not all that far from Chicago by air, but uh, quite a lot of airports, I imagine, in between. Straight oh, this, distance, this. yeah, 20 to th- not even 30 minutes, was it? It was about 20 to 25 minutes, wasn't it, Baz? Yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah, and there were more air- airports in that straight line distance then we'd see if we did a big circumnavigation around uh, the Melbourne area, you know, right around including the bay and the peninsula and all that. There was just lots and lots of, of airstrips and airports and not just tiny airstrips but fully paved dual runway airports and aircraft everywhere. The, the TCAS was quite alive. Oh, yeah. There's uh, there's probably more uh, ILSs in the Chicago area than there's in the whole of uh, Australia as well, they. <laughs> Seem to have things pretty well in order there. Yeah, and guess how much the user fees are for those ILS guys? Oh, uh, nothing. Zip. <laughs> yeah, buy me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Now, Baz, of course, you're a bit of a fan of the Cirrus, so, uh, you know, you've, you've talked about that on previous times you've been on the show. So, you know, has this uh, convinced you? Are you uh, now going to trade the Sporty in and uh, upgrade? 
Uh, possibly, possibly. There's a few, a uh, few of us uh, together looking at uh, buying a nice, comfortable uh, four-seat family cruiser. I think an SR20 is definitely on the on the list of possibilities. Can, can you just do a, do something for me? And that is, when you're looking into that Cirrus, find out what they do to make sure that after they've cut the tail off, it's joined back on again properly. Because you yeah. know they have to cut that damn tail off to fit it in the, in the container, right? I know that's the that's the only downside. Well, you can uh, just just uh, put fairy tanks in it and fly it across. It's only a short hop. Yeah, <laughs> in an A380. Yeah, done, done yeah an exactly. A380. I think the only way to do it uh, is going the long way round. That's probably the safest way to do it, unless you want to end up modifying the entire aircraft. Ah, uh, fairy tanks. One of the guys from Bonanza's to Osh, Oshkosh. In fact, Wayne Wayne Collins, the man who started Bonanza's to Oshkosh. He's put 100-gallon uh, tip tanks on each wing of his uh, Bonanza and flown that sucker from uh, L.A. across to or from California to Hawaii and down to um, Australia via, I think it was via Numir and New Zealand and in. So he's doing that in a single engine with, admittedly, some rather large tip tanks. So a couple of ferry tanks, you could do it. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, everybody believes in their particular brand. I guess it's like Fords and Holdens, isn't it? Here you've got Bonanza, uh, all the Bonanza guys there uh, waiting at Rockford to come in. And, of course, here comes Rob Mark taking you guys in in a Cirrus. Now, that's uh, not usually an issue in itself, but uh, poor old Rob, um, you know, he had a little bit of trouble getting that thing restarted in front yeah. of about, what, a couple of hundred-odd yeah. Bonanza pilots? Yeah. Yep. It's a fair one number of them laughing. Yeah, and a, and a bit of helping out. So I think the tips by the... The guys eventually got it started, but uh, later on, I just heard the funniest thing. There were two little kids that they, they wouldn't have had. They would have had a single-digit age still, and one of them was uh, telling, "Hey, you know what my dad just just said uh, when the plane was leaving? He said, you hear that, son? That's the best sound in aviation. That's the sound of a Sierra's leaving.'" Ah, oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but. <laughs> You do realize I heard the revenge comment. I was chatting with some folks from Cirrus, and I think I even have it on recording from, uh, it was during the Gipsero uh, barbecue, that uh, they knew they had it made when the head of the Bonanza Society bought himself a Cirrus. <laughs> so well, there you go. I'd not, if I'd known that, I would have had a wee chat with those boys. <laughs> That's a bit like Peter Brock driving a Ford. Oh, hang on, that did happen, didn't it? Yeah. Oh, don't go there. There you go. Anyway, well, anyway, let's talk about Oshkosh now. Let's talk about the Bonanza's arrival. We're going to cover the uh, Bonanza's to Oshkosh in full in a later episode, but uh, uh, let's just talk about it in in brief, guys. It's a very unique arrival. Let's talk about uh, what it was like to fly in, not only uh, to the uh, to the event itself, but in a formation of you know several hundred uh, other aircraft all at once. Yeah. So when they say a formation of a hundred aircraft, it's uh, you know it's it's not like the mass formations you see in the you know footage from World War Two. Um, it's or during uh, the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's really uh, groups of three that take off with about fifteen seconds between them. Uh, so each group is in formation, uh, just a lead and an echelon left and an echelon right. But there's quite a bit of distance between each of those groups, so it's not a, a real tight formation. So that, that makes it a bit more manageable. But uh, it, it's great because you know you start by lining up everyone on the runway. So the first element just gets you know halfway down the runway. Uh, that's where they start from, and then there's uh, another 106 behind them. Yeah, it's pretty impressive looking at everyone on the runway, and then you just watch the wave after wave after wave going ahead of you, and. The, like I was pretty much down, not quite, but very close to the rear 
I was in the uh, lead air, lead aircraft. I was actually in a Baron. Baz was in a Bonanza. I was in a Baron. So I was in the lead aircraft from element number four. So that's 12 Barons right there. And then there was another couple behind me. So we're flying along just looking at a sky in the distance. You just see, it's not like they're way, masses of aluminium in front of you, but, but you're seeing like aircraft all the way out as far as your eye can see. There's just a stream of aircraft. It's great. And then, of course, once you uh, get there and it's time to land, you land in formation, but uh, probably for safety, I, I guess it would be possible to do it, but be pretty close formation if you wanted to get all three of them on the same runway. So we end up landing on uh, runway uh, 36, which is uh, not the, the main runway that all the uh, single-engine uh, oh, aircraft you, you arrive on. Aircraft right, the right-hand aircraft of the, of the formation lands on the taxiway. That's what I was going to they say, which is which there. has been it's been renamed three six right for the duration of the air show. Yeah, I got three six left because I was in lead. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I got to be on the on the right one, which is uh, pretty cool. So the right aircraft you know, just has to swerve out a fair bit to the right, but you still try to land, of course, in line with the uh, the aircraft uh, next to you in your uh, formation. Now the air traffic control itself is quite unique there. So let, let's talk about for those who perhaps haven't seen any of the YouTube videos around about how the Oshkosh uh, arrival system works. Uh, basically, it sounds to me like you don't actually do that much audible communication with the tower. They'll basically identify you and you rock your wings is that right yeah that's right although it's slightly different for the bonanzas because uh, the bonanzas is a, a mass arrival they know they're coming uh, like i said they're not on the normal runway that at the same time the uh, the other single engine arrivals are happening on so ba- uh, basically about 20 miles out i think the uh, the lead aircraft uh, called the tower says you know we've got 109 bonanzas inbound and uh, they just make sure that no one else gets on that runway and after that there's really not much communication between the bonanzas and the tower they actually close Close the airspace except for warbirds and uh, turbines IFRs. Uh, the warbirds and the IFRs are going in on 2709 while we're all coming in on 36. And you basically come in on the last couple of fixes, GPS waypoints, and you turn left and there you are. You're lined up on 36 and there's everyone parked and even on the Saturday, there were lots of aircraft there, weren't there, Baz? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of people arrive early and especially... Uh well, one of the reasons, of course, the history behind the Bonanza thing is that they all wanted to camp together. And the only way to camp together is to arrive together because otherwise you're going to be all over the field uh, because aircraft are just lined up as they come in. And uh, I think that North 40 was probably about a third of the way full by the time we arrived on Saturday early afternoon. Yeah, it was, it was doing pretty well. Then the Cessnas came in behind us. And then yeah, it was all was, downhill from there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we filled the place up pretty quick. Uh, in fact, the North 40, although the guys were saying, oh, man, in previous years when it had been really full, the North 40 was duplicated on the other side around where Milford had wound up parking was just as packed as where we were. I mean, we, we had 20 to 30 aircraft per row, and there was like, how many rows were there? We, we were well over 40 rows in that whole North 40, weren't there? Um, I haven't I was, checked. I was at 520 and it started at 500 type thing. Yeah. And we were down at 20 and then there were fir- that, that was one of the early Bonanza ones. There was another three rows of Bonanzas and then it was into all, everyone else, including the Cessnas and all the others further down. Then right around the, um, the threshold area and back around up the other side. But uh, that was partially full. And given a lot of those guys left on Wednesday, a lot of the early arrivals left early to try and get home, beat weather, that kind of thing, 
be home, recover on the weekend, ready for work the next week. As a result, you'd have these big gaps in the North 40 around where the early birds had been, but it was still packing out around the rest of it because they were putting new aircraft in, in the other rows. It's quite fascinating. Well, let's talk about the arrival now. Of course, in the meantime, um, I stayed back an extra day back in Chicago and uh, David Vanderhoof, my friend Mike Wilson and I, along with Rob Mark, had all uh, trekked up by road. It's about a three-hour drive up from uh, Chicago. So we've all arrived there. We've met up with you guys. My initial impressions as we were driving into the place was just mind-blowing. The place is so big and, you know, if you've not been there before, I don't know what it was like for you guys flying in, if you could get a real proper appraisal of the scale of the place or did you find that you needed to be on the ground? But for me, as soon as we turned up there and you could see as you were driving in just rows and rows of aircraft on one side and rows and rows of campers and uh, mobile office blocks I call them like uh, RVs <laughs> caravans I mean there was literally thousands of them they were everywhere and it's it's right from the very second you get there that just you know it's it's often said that the Americans always like to do things in a big way but uh, you know this was just the embodiment of that I thought yeah and it's one of the interesting you know facts about it that we, we always say that there's more aircraft there during that week than we have on the registry in Australia. But it's just such a big country, and this is just the major show. Uh, relatively speaking, you know, you never get anything like that here, but that's just because we don't have the people. If you yeah. look at the Orioles NetFly, you got a 1,000 people flying in. Well, the U.S. has got 15 times as many people as Australia. So relatively speaking, it's, you know, about the same size. But because you don't, it's not physically that big, you don't get that critical mass of all the uh, suppliers there and uh, just that many visitors. It is. I mean, a number of the Yanks I was talking to, they were saying, oh, mate, this is our annual holiday. We save up our leave and we this is what we do. And we get on the road or we get in the air. We come down and this is us catching up with everyone we know and we all have a great time. And then we bug out and that's that's what they do. They do this every year because it's the big thing and it's how they catch up with all their mates. It's something that we've tried to give. And I, I, I don't know how successful we were in the three shows that we did while we were there, but I really wanted to try and find the right words to describe the scale of the place. It, it, I guess it's really something, you know, I'd say to most people, you've really got to go there and experience it. You know, and David Vanderhoof had said to me, I told you so, I told you so. And, you know, I, I'd said, well, you know, it's big. And we knew it would be bigger than Avalon, I guess, which is, you know, the only thing that we've really got to compare it to. But you know, I think, um, to be honest with you, probably most of Avalon would have, would have fitted in the campground we were in it was <laughs> <laughs> well yeah for me it was uh, it was well i expected it to be, be this big so it's i wasn't surprised when i got there um but it's uh you know it doesn't take away from the fact that it's really really big and your know, week isn't a whole lot of time when you're at something that that big you know it's funny i thought i'd got around the place but uh about halfway through the week there we uh, we we went up and covered an event for gibbs aero and that was actually held off the field. And so we had to walk from where we were in Camp Shola uh, quite some distance. And I actually thought at that stage that I'd seen most of the grounds getting around and trying to interview people. But, you know, by this time we'd been there about three or four days and um, we'd walked through a whole section that I had never even seen. And we had walked a, a long, long way from the camp by this point. And we're walking through these rows of warbirds, uh, I think it was. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I said to David, yeah. I just, I didn't even know this bit was here. And he just kept saying, I told you so. <laughs> Yeah, you were you were walking through the um, from from the the uh, trade show area. We walked through the parking zone for most of the home builds, and then walked through the Warbirds area into the car park that we were using. 
And if you had kept walking around a bit further, you would have come to the bottom end of the North 40, mate. And then you would have gone, and that's when you would have turned the left and gone down the North 40. To give you another idea of it, um, if it's any consolation, uh, from Aeroshell Square, I walked all the way south as well because I was heading down to see the guys about going ballooning. So I did that on the Friday and the Saturday. And that took you down through the south part of the display where you interviewed uh, Mike Goulian and all that. Um, further south than there, you go through all the antiques and you get some amazing classic biplanes and beautiful aircraft and some old early model Pipers and Cessnas and Bonanzas and all that kind of stuff in the antique zone. Then you go down and suddenly you're in the ultralights and now you've got a whole little strip there for the ultralights and that's where the balloonatics were and the gyrocopters and a whole lot of the stuff that I like to play around with. And next thing you know, you're in the South 40 and that's like the North 40, but again, it's the same kind of thing, but it's at the Southern end of um, the, you know, three, six runway. It's just amazing. The same amount of stuff. It's huge. And I don't think Steve, you ever got down there, did you? I kind of lost track to be honest. Uh, I did spend a lot of time back at the camp where uh, the guys from my transponder had uh, just brought all sorts of wonderful uh, gear from Sennheiser <laughs> and Canon and ICANN, not to mention uh, that they had the only air conditioned vehicle in the camp, I think. So, <laughs> I mean, it was incredibly <laughs> hot there. It was a very, very hot week uh, weather-wise and humid too so it was good to get that relief but it's probably one regret that I had but I mean air show wise is that I, I had to spend a lot of time uh, getting the shows ready but uh, you know that's that's you know it's part of the challenge and half the fun as far as I'm concerned but uh, yeah. yeah there were there were several parts of that uh, airport that I just never got to see so uh, that just means we'll have to go back again and have another look. Oh mate I, I still despite it being one of my goals and one of the things I wanted to do the one thing I never got to do was go to the um, the lake and see the seaplane base. Yeah, and it's interesting. Uh, I actually um, didn't even give that a thought until about halfway through. And uh, one of the things that Camp Shola has is a pretty comprehensive bus network. They've got all these uh, <laughs> uh, yellow school buses going through. And uh, one of the buses that was running through the camp the whole time was actually a direct link uh, to the seaplane base. And it's only when you, you know, I sort of kept putting that out of my mind and thinking, I must get down there and you'd sort of forget about it. And then the bus would come past with the sign seaplane base. And you think, must do that, must do that. But yeah. <laughs> Go on, tell us the story about your bus ride. Oh, the bus ride, yes. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, buses always give me the shivers. Uh, many people may not know, but I actually um, have worked for a couple of bus companies in this town, so I try to avoid buses as much as possible. But, uh, yeah, this one particular afternoon, uh, I had to uh, get some material back to the camp, and I thought, well, perhaps, you know, it's a hot day and we're going to be doing a lot of transiting between the uh, where the press centre was and uh, where we're doing all our editing. So I thought, well, I'll just catch one of these buses. They seem to go everywhere through the park. It won't be long. And so I jumped on this bus at the, uh, the exit area there, and it went as far away as possible in the camp from where our tent was and basically went and trekking through the entire rest of the of the air show and uh, by the time it got to the top of its run and started making its way back towards uh, where I needed to go, um, like an idiot, I was sitting down the back, well it had emptied out and then we started picking up people and I got trapped on it and I got trapped on it for nearly an hour so uh, the bottom line is I got off at the same place I got on and then walked back to the camp which is what I should have done in the first place. <laughs> so we'll just call yeah, that a research project. There you go, it's just down that little, uh, that one little street, you know, would have got you straight there, mate. Yes, yes, I know. Well, it just, you know, see, that's just serves me right for being lazy. Well, I mean, look at it. It's, it, it had to be that that was where we set up our camp. It was 42nd and Lindbergh, wasn't it? Was it something like that? Yeah. I think it was, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was yeah, fun, was- wasn't it, boys, setting up the camp? Although you two, actually, uh, Bez, uh, you, you didn't stay at the camp, which, um, you know, uh, in terms of setting up the tent was probably a very wise move. But, uh, <laughs> we, you know, the guys, they gave us a bit of stick there. They said we had a big tent. I don't know. I mean, uh, it wasn't that big. And by the time we set up the three-car garage and the swimming pool and the underground basement, I didn't think it was all that big. <laughs> I got to say, without if, if we hadn't have had that spa bath there, I would have died. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I tell you, like it was, it was really when it was really a fun thing to be there with all the other uh, new media guys, and uh, there were so many other podcasters there, all in that one, uh, that one little piece of uh, camp shola. You know, I, <laughs> I don't know whether I'd be that keen to do the camping thing again. I, it was, um, it was very, very hot, very uncomfortable, and uh, didn't get a lot of sleep. <laughs> And I think if I was to stay in Camp Shola again, I'm going to take a leaf out of uh, either Stu Stevenson's book or Mike Miley's book, and uh, I'm going to rent one of those mobile office blocks, I think, and just park it in the campground. That's probably yeah, the we, best way to do it. Well, you know, it would have been. Sm- I mean, if we'd got one of those uh, one of those big RVs, it still would have been smaller than our tent. <laughs> oh, come on! Our tent wasn't that big. There were four of us squeezed in there. Yeah, that one's just for Dave Allen. He'll he'll think that he'll appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear! All right, well let's move on here, guys, and let's uh, let's talk about some highlights. I, I tell you what, the big highlight for me was seeing so many aircraft that I have only ever seen on the TV. A B twenty nine, for instance, the B twenty nine was there. I have never seen one of those in real life, and it was it was an awesome experience. And not only, I mean, it's not like Avalon where you couldn't even get near it; you could get right up underneath it. You could touch the thing if you wanted to. That was amazing. B seventeens, I've never seen B seventeens in real life either, and yet here they had two of them crisscrossing the sky all day, taking people for joyrides if they wanted to go oh yeah we oh, yeah. saw one of them land at uh, rock no sorry at uh, chicago executive uh, yes. while we were getting ready to head out in the cirrus yeah yep. everywhere pulled up and landed but uh mate you knew you were, you knew you were settling into oshkosh when by the end of the week you'd hear this and you'd be like oh yeah that'll be aluminum overcast that's the b17 going over you look up oh yeah it's that one yeah and then you know you'd be walking along a bit further and Oh, yeah, that'd be the F-86. Or no, maybe it's a Fury. Oh, it's a Fury. You know, yeah. And a bit later on, you hear the sound, of glorious sound of four Merlins in close formation. And you look mm. up and sure enough, it's four P-51s beating up the field and doing break off, peel away to landing. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's the guys again. You know, whereas on the first day, you're there going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Look at all these P-51s. Oh, B-17. Oh, FJ-4. Yeah. <laughs> oh. No. oh, yeah. I mean, there was and there were so many warbirds there. I mean, you went up to the warbirds area and you, there was – several rows of P-51s, gleaming P-51 Mustangs, uh, and, and, and all manner of other uh, World War II era aircraft. Too many to mention here, I guess, but, you know, many of those um, you, you would not see in this country, or certainly I've not seen down in our part of the country. They may be somewhere else up, up north or over in the west perhaps. But well, uh, I'll face it, if we if we could get to double digits Mustangs that could actually taxi, let alone take off in the air, we'd be having conniptions. Yeah. I mean, you know, we got to seven and we're like, woo David and I walked through through the field uh, there where and, and and several of them had departed the field by the time we we got to uh, walk down there this afternoon and I reckon there must have been three or four rows of them they were they were just mm-hmm. everywhere it was it was amazing Fighter Town had uh, about twelve to fourteen of them in the field plus a couple of P40s and a P38 and then there were a couple of F4 Corsairs over the back uh, and a Tiger Cat and the Hellcat and the Wildcat and the um, Helldiver um, oh and the um, the there was that one um f uh fuck wolf 190 mm. you know like drool what about you bez what was your highlight so one of my highlights i think uh, probably the best thing i did was uh 
I got to rug my wings at Oshkosh. As you heard in the uh, one of the episodes during the show, I uh, actually got a, a media flight in the Remos GX, which is a very, very nice LSA. It's uh, really a premium LSA, a bit probably same price range and finishing and quality as you'd expect from the Sportstar, the Sport Cruiser, the CT uh, flight design range. Um, so very nice aircraft, and uh, I had the pleasure to uh, go up in it uh, for a demo flight with a really great demo pilot because uh, he just said, I'm just going to let you fly. Just let me know if you uh, want or need me to uh, take over. Um, nice. Yeah, which is the best kind of uh, demo pilot to have. So uh, we texted out from um, the uh, FBO, which is not a great experience. We'll have to have a chat about. Um, and uh, you know, w- without ever using the radio, I just hit listening to uh, air traffic control lined up on the runway and took off and just went out a bit and did a bit of flying, bit of maneuvering and Came back in, didn't have to say anything. They once we got over to prison, which we did the the prison approach, as it's called. You know, they started talking to us, and you know, just rock your wings and follow the uh, VTL Bonanza, and then all of a sudden, uh, he, he tells the Bonanza to uh, extend his downwind and uh, tells us to turn base. We were just about the threshold, so all of a sudden he switches around. We were number one now, and. Uh, I didn't really understand the uh, the gravity of that. So he, he hadn't given me a dot yet at that point. So I was still, you know, this is an LSA. I'm used to doing steep approaches. So I was pretty much still aiming for the the numbers, uh, maybe a little bit beyond. And then when we got on really short final for that, he said, I'll oh, keep up your speed, uh, green dot, please. <laughs> so <laughs> added, added some power, raced for the green dot to make some, uh, some space for the Bonanza behind us. But uh, yeah, went pretty well. So I was pretty happy. Now, the green dot, Baz, is that the first dot up the runway or is that somewhere else? That's, that's the second. Before we had the numbers, uh, white, and then green. So really halfway down the runway. And uh, now, you know, you, you've got the Sports Star there. And actually, I noticed they had a couple of newer models of Sports Star there. Yeah, I don't know whether you got a chance nice. to look at those or not. Um, but how, how flying the Remos, I mean, what was the feel of it like? You know, how did it compare to the Sports Star? Very similar. I mean, with, with aircraft, you, you get what you pay for. And uh, there's some, uh, you know, some cheaper, uh, I wouldn't say cheap, but, you know, more affordable aircraft uh, that, you know, don't, they're safe and they get you airborne and uh, they're fun, but they're not as well balanced and the controls aren't quite as tight. And, and the Remos is really, like I said, it's a premium one, just like the Sportstar, all the controls are push rods. It's just a normal stick. Uh, so each each uh, pilot has has their own stick. Uh, it's a Rotex engine, which I'm used to, and I really I immediately felt at home in in the thing. Uh, like I said, the demo pilot. Uh, the only time I uh, asked him to take over was for me to turn around and turn on the camera that I forgot to turn on during the takeoff, which is a shame. Oops. <laughs> Oops. Uh, but after that, it was just uh, it was just me and just landing the thing. Just felt perfectly natural, which is you know I'm I'm no very experienced pilot. You know I've got about 200,000 sports are now and a few hours in some other type so I'm not terribly experienced and I could just handle it no problem at all I mean if it were given to me now and I just read the manual and be perfectly safe flying it which I think says a lot about the aircraft that it's it's that nice and easy to fly yeah I, I've watched that video a few times now Baz and um, you, you really did look quite quite comfortable I'd have to say in, in that landing I mean you know, if considering you're not flying that type before, I mean, uh, okay, you, you did overshoot the green dot, but not by much. But uh, no, you yeah, did, you did look much. very comfortable, mate, flying that. I must say. Yeah, no, I'd, uh, I'm I'm a low wing kind of guy, but if someone said, uh, "How would you like to uh, swap your sporty for uh, for this one?" I'd mm, give it very serious thought. Very nice aircraft. Now, um, Grant, what about you? Highlights for you? 
Oh, wow, wow. We've already covered a few of them, like, you know, touching a B29 and a 787. So from, you know, not quite one end of the uh, Boeing Extreme to the other, but definitely a couple of classic Boeings. Um, I know Dan would probably kill me for calling the 787 a classic already, but, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, was, I was impressed. I enjoyed getting up close, but I, I didn't really want to go on it. I knew it wasn't going to be quite what I wanted from a tour, but... Uh, yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, one of the things that blew me away, and it was just this look up, see, go, oh, yeah, cool, and then realize what I'd seen. I saw a starship flying past. Cool. The, the beach starship. Uh, you know, absolutely amazing. I've always heard about them, and I've always read about them, seen photos, know about the history, know what happened with them. They were supposed to take over from the King Air. It didn't work out, blah, 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 blah. But there was one flying, absolutely beautiful to watch. So that was pretty big. Uh, Spent a lot of time catching up with all the Kiwis, including a bit of time at the end. Uh, I think it was on the Friday or the Saturday. No, it was the Saturday when the storm was sideswiping us. Um, just having a couple of beers with the Kiwis from Composite Helicopters. They've uh, produced a really cool kit helicopter. It trues out around 160 knots, 450 shaft horsepower um, turbine in it. And this is a kit set, by the way, five or six passengers, you know, all this kind of stuff. Amazing thing. But yeah, really impressed with the Kiwis. They, they had a very good contingent there, definitely punching above their weight with um, some of the technologies and concepts that they had there. But yeah, otherwise, I think we've pretty much covered everything. It was just amazing, absolutely amazing. It really is, um, you know, it, it really is difficult to put into words. Uh, there's just so much there to see that it's it, it really is overwhelming. One of the other highlights for me was um, you, you would have heard on all the uh, uh, on all the recordings we did. You can hear those um, Bell Forty Seven choppers. There's three of them flying around all the time doing doing joy flights. And uh, yeah, one of the real highlights for me of that trip was when uh, David Vanderhoof and I trekked across and, and did the flight. Uh, actually, we did that flight at the time the Seven Eight Seven was uh, was open for its tour, so we we didn't get to go in the Seven Eight Seven, but uh, we got to fly over it in the chopper. And uh, uh, I heard David describe it on the airplane geeks the other day as, as it looked like a sea of ants trying to carry away the. <laughs> 787. I mean, it was in the, uh, the, the what, what do they call it now? The Conoco Phillips Square or Conoco, Plaza? Yeah, it's called? Conoco Phillips Plaza. Right there in what the centre. And Square. there was thousands and thousands of people there. And I believe the, the wait got out to uh, quite a few hours if you wanted to get through the 787. We did get down a bit later on and uh, walk underneath it and have a look at it. Um, you know, obviously, this is a test bed aircraft. So the, one of the things that actually interested me was uh, all the extra uh, gadgets that were uh, hanging off the side of it, off the fuselage and uh, off the wings. And actually, they've got uh, quite a long uh, antenna hanging out behind it, uh, taking measurements. It's actually, the static device um, hangs off the back of the tail, right at the tip of the tail at the back. All oh, right, yeah. I mean, um, it was looks like a drogue. Yeah, that's it. Did it looked like a drogue and. I mean, I, I found that fascinating. I would like to have gone on it, but uh, we missed the media call for that one. But I tell you what, going over in the chopper, I've actually never ridden in a chopper before. So uh, really, it was a, no, I never have, and so it was a first. Wow. For, was a first for me, and um, I really want to thank David for that because uh, as soon as soon as we got there, that was his goal, and uh, we you know we if we were going to do anything that week, uh, we were going to go and do that, and I, I really liked that. I mean, uh, you know, getting to meet so many people that we had had only ever spoken to over Skype was it was a great thing, but uh, getting to meet yep. David and to spend some time with him. Was was a real highlight for me too and it's a shame that he couldn't be on the show with <laughs> us this evening but uh for those of you who who wonder about david he's about six foot four inches of walking aviation encyclopedia <laughs> everywhere <laughs> yeah, you go him. he's uh he, you know people tried to stump him all week i don't think anybody did no he's he's good he's good he's a lot of fun and uh yeah great really appreciated all the help he gave us and i really enjoyed watching the um, curtis pusher replica flying uh on the friday evening just 
uh, standing there just at sunset watching it fly around. That was brilliant. And then interviewing the guys with them the next day. And uh, yeah, look, I think you're right about the people. Uh, while the 787 was on and you were flying over it, I was back in meeting up with some people that I'd, I'd always wanted to, uh, like the guys from Chicken Wings. Uh, Mike was there. Um, there was uh, the uh, bio who wrote Top Gun Days, mm. catching up with him. A number of other authors and Paul, of course, from the, uh, from the barnstorming movie. Uh, meeting up with all these people I've always wanted to meet up with and at Potapalooza, uh, the chance to actually meet up with some people that I've been listening to their podcast for a very long time, such as Roy Byswinger, uh, who uh, does the Powered Sport one. It used to be the Ultraflight Radio and uh, people like that. But you know, also going out to dinner with the UCAP guys. I mean, how cool was that? Oh, that was an absolute <laughs> highlight. I, I want to mention that too. Um, I've got that in our list here, the, the UCAP guys. You know, it, it was one thing to, to meet them. It was another thing to, uh, you know, for them to say, come on, let's get together and uh, have dinner. That was fantastic. But uh, about halfway through that dinner, Jack pulled out his little recorder, and I thought, well, here we go. Um, you know, we'll just sit back and watch while uh, he does his thing. But uh, then he got the recorder out and actually included us in it. So uh, actually getting a chance to get onto UCAP, which is... Um, actually the first podcast that I ever listened to of any kind. So uh, boy, that was a highlight for me. Yeah, no, definite highlight. Always had a lot of respect for those guys. And uh, they, they too were one of my original podcasts. Uh, they were in there with the pilot cast and uh, Joe Dion, uh, Fly With Me. And uh, it was also good to meet up with Jason, Jason Miller from The Finer Points. Absolutely great to catch up with him. He was only there for a few days. And then, of course, Steve Tupper, uh, who does the uh, Airspeed Online. Uh, these were the guys that I started listening to when I first got into aviation podcasts. And, uh, yeah, it was absolutely great to meet up with those guys and hang out and say hi and uh, have them go, oh, hey, you know, you guys are doing some good stuff. And we were saying the same to them. And it was great to be able to compare notes and everything. Absolutely brilliant. Like you guys, it was absolutely great meeting them. Uh, UCAP has been, I've been listening to them for years. The uh, To be honest, it's really my main aviation podcast uh, I listen to still. And the, the, the other ones get occasional listens, but this is one that I, I listen to uh, usually the day after it comes out. So, you know, great to meet meet them. Great, great bunch of guys and uh, hope to see them again, uh, well, next year or the year after. Oh, absolutely. It was a fun night, wasn't it? And, uh, you know, once once a few <laughs> beers got flying, uh, it was a real fun night. It was a, <laughs> We had a blast. Yeah. Well, it was rather incongruous uh, eating Thai food in the middle of Wisconsin with the guys from UCAP. Yeah. Like, well, this is <laughs> Not to mention you trying to order your food in Thai. Yeah, well, you one show One lady off. did speak Thai. One of the girls did speak Thai. The other one didn't. I didn't realize both of them didn't. Uh, like, you know, I thought both of them did. And so I was jabbering away and one was understanding me and getting it. And the other one was like, I think I get it. So, yeah, that was rather embarrassing. <laughs> I think the really cool aspect of that recording and, uh, folks, if you listen to Uncontrolled Airspace, that will be their episode 244H. Um, I mean, those those guys, you know, they kind of do their own thing and they, they kind of like to keep it in-house as, as far as I can tell. But so for them to allow us to come onto their show, I mean, that's, that's a real privilege. And, um, you know, I just yep. want to shout out to them again. I mean, uh, it was just, it was a really great night. I mean, that was right at the end of uh, Air Venture too. So it was a great was way to cap it off. Yeah. And there's one, one more highlight that I'd like to mention. You've probably heard of them, heard of it when you were uh, reading about uh, flying in the US and when you listen to other podcasts and what things, what where people have been and how they've been there. There's this mythical place in the United States. It's called the FBO, the, the fixed base operator, a place where you can just pull up onto the ramp. Someone will guide you in with some ping pong bats and ask you if you want fuel or not. Um, and you tell them yes. And also 
Uh, can you check my oil? And I think I heard a bit of a vibration. Can you get the mechanic to uh, check that out? Well, you pick up the courtesy car, absolutely free of charge, and drive into town and do your business meeting and come back and get back into your airplane and fly off all without any fees for that. You know, it's all included in the price of gas. And it turns out that mythical place actually exists. Well, it's everywhere. In fact, uh, when I, did, I when I flew uh, after Oshkosh, we did the departure and uh, flew out with Milford from Flight Time Radio uh, and his friend Sam, and we headed south to Arkansas. We had to make two stops for refueling along the way, both times pulling into these these small towns, one in uh, Clinton, Iowa, and the other one in Hannibal, Missouri. I mean, they're not big towns, but you pull into the FBO, same thing. You know, the operator comes out, helps you, uh, you know, with 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 all your needs, anything you want. In the meantime, while he's taking care of your airplane, you just um, head on inside, you know, grab a weather, grab another weather brief at no charge. Great. Have a coffee at no charge. Sit in the air-conditioned lounge. Use their Wi-Fi. Yep, it's guys, guys, guys. I keep telling you, as I've said many times, we do have this in Australia. If you're flying a Gulfstream, exactly, and executive they, down in Essendon, or if you exactly. fly to Turin. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, that, this is the thing. If you go to a place like Parafield, you've got you know, a couple of flying schools. You've got two got two different guys selling you fuel got a few mechanic shops and they're all completely separate and if if you show up there just unannounced you know you have no idea where to go and the fbo is just all these places rolled into one and you you can call ahead and book in so they know you're coming or you just show up and buy some fuel from them and uh, you know how great would it be to have that here at least at the the major ga airfields how would that stimulate business flying and people you know, having their private mm-hmm. Cirruses and or Bonanzas or or uh, transport aircraft like that, you know, personal transport aircraft to fly themselves around the country on business or just for fun, uh, it'd be at, so much easier. Look at what you've got over there. The airport directory guide is a value add from AOPA and groups like that. It's a it's a a good thing to have as opposed to here, where the Ursa is an essential item that you must pay forty dollars or more for every quarter. <laughs> Yeah, well, we've got the AOPA guide here, but there's no FBOs listed in it because we don't have any. Yeah, how how do you know where to go and get fuel? You look it up in Ursa. How do you know where to park? You look it up in Ursa. How do you know how to get into town? Well, hopefully somebody's left you the um, the number for a local taxi service. Yeah, exactly on, on the wall of some building that's you know near the gate. <laughs> well, yeah. I think I mean I think speaking as someone who who basically, you know, I mean, everybody knows by now who listens to this show, I did basically all of my flying training in the US. And so I've lived in that culture. It it really is a cultural thing that's different between here and there. Uh, And the other thing too, I think that helps with the FBOs is is the population and and the pilot population. They have the, they have the market there that can sustain it. I'm not, not sure that, I'm not sure that the market here is big enough to sustain FBOs as widespread as they are, at least in the US. I wouldn't expect them in places uh, like Port Augusta, but (laughs) I, I reckon uh, you know, at Morabin, at Bankstown, at Parafield, at Gendicott, you would have one or two of these, you know, all in one full service operators that would probably be doing better because instead of, you know, the one guy selling fuel, the one guy doing the maintenance, the one guy renting out planes and, and get, doing flying training, if you put that all into one place, you got a lot less overhead, economies of scales make it more profitable than it is now. Um, and we would have the, the people to support. And also, I think it's a case of build it and they will come. There, there'll be more customers coming to these airfields just because that service is there and they know they can just easily park there, nothing to worry about, uh, they'll be taken care of and be on their way soon. 
Yeah, the interesting thing too is um, if you come into a, a slightly bigger airport over there, perhaps, you know, the size of Parafield or something where you'll have multiple FBOs on the field, let's say you've got three, well, you'll be taxiing up the ramp and the guys you're talking about with the ping pong bats waving you in, you'll have three. There'll be one from each FBO out there and they're all hoping to get your business. So, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of a, a cool thing too. The thing that really struck me being there is that it was not, uh, in fact, Baz, you talked about uh, Natfly earlier and I've talked about Avalon. It's a vastly different air show from Avalon. The sort of spirit that we saw at Natfly probably was on a very, very small scale, similar to what we, what I sort of experienced at Air Venture. I mean, Avalon is a trade show, and, and of course yeah. there was a big trade show aspect about it, but more than it being an air show or more than it being a trade show, there was just this, this spirit, wasn't there? It was like it was just a gigantic celebration of aviation. It was unlike anything I've ever experienced. Yeah, and it was so civilised. I mean, I didn't see any trouble anywhere even on the public days with lots of the general public coming in and watching the air shows and watching the planes. And um, like we said before, you could just walk up to uh, an F-16 if you wanted to place your Coke bottle in the uh, in the intake. But that's something that people just don't do, well, not, not as much as you'd expect them to do here. There was you can't no, use a P3 as shade. <laughs> there was no attitude. It didn't it, it didn't matter. There was military pilots there. There was airline pilots there. Uh, there was private pilots, LSA. It doesn't matter. It really didn't matter if you were there. Everybody was there with a common uh, passion for aviation. And you heard it said a lot there that um, Oshkosh is really all about the people. And even if that's a cliche, you know, it really was true. I mean, the, the spirit there, uh, it, it was amazing. And, it, you know, as much as I enjoy Avalon, it's it's not the same sort of atmosphere that you find at Avalon. Avalon Avalon's really heavy metal and, and they're there to sell jets and they take an air show on, on you know which is pretty spectacular and it's good for people to watch but they're really I don't think is the sort of spirit that I found uh, just walking around there at Air Venture. No I mean it's, it is a trade show it's a it's a it's a sales and business kind of show you don't have anyone camping at Avalon you don't have acres of aircraft parked there and all that you've got the trade shows and that's it it's it's like an Australian version of Farnborough or um, La Bourget things like that and uh, the Singapore air shows it's it's all about come and see the aircraft come and do business come and learn but not come and share the passion and come and just revel in the fact that you know you've got all these aircraft I think it was Rob on the airplane geeks saying you know at uh, Le Bourget at uh, Farnborough and by extension at Avalon you're not going to see someone walking along with a bloody windsock stuck in their hat <laughs> whereas <laughs> no you're not you know, you, you go and do that at Oshkosh and you've got hundreds of people sticking windsocks in their hat and everyone going, that's cool, it's fine, <laughs> yeah. go for it, not a problem. And places like uh, like Avalon and Farnborough where I have been uh, a couple of times, um, it's not, when you say it's a trade, you're trying to sell jets, but it's almost a uh, just a bit of a junket for the people in the industry because those 737s, were, they were going to get sold anyway, <laughs> whether the shell was there or not. <laughs> this yeah. is just the announcement point. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's a big media event and uh, it gets people, probably gets passengers interested in those new uh, aircraft so that the airlines will buy them. Uh, but there's very little, if, if any, general aviation. Definitely at Farnborough there's no general aviation. Oh, no. Uh, there's a bit of, bit of Avalon, I understand. I, I haven't been yes. yet. But nothing like this. This is a great air show, uh, but it's, it's, you know, it's also all the forums. Um, it's uh, the, the people, it's the, you know, the hangar, they call them hangars, not really hangars, <laughs> just big, uh, big buildings full of all the, uh, the smaller stands where people show their products and, and sell products. Uh, but it's all general aviation. I mean, the military shows up and Boeing shows up, uh, but it's not in the same way that they do at, at Farnborough or Avalon. You know, this is, this is a GA show and the heavy metal are 
guests, welcome guests, but out of you know, interest, but not the main event. Well, uh, look, we might just uh, wind up our, our our summary and our observations there. I, I tell you what, uh, you mentioned Rob Mark, and uh, let's just talk about him quickly. And I'll play an interview quickly that we recorded with him. Uh, you know, we've described David Vanderhoof as a six foot four of walking encyclopedia. Well. You know, I, I guess um, Rob Mark would be about what five foot nine of walking marketing machine. He is. He <laughs> I was, was going to say a walking uh, pilot's operating handbook. Yeah. <laughs> well, no visit to Air Venture would be complete without talking to our good friend from Jetwine. Jetwine, we hear that a lot, don't we, Rob? It's Rob Mark. Yeah. Well, you know, the winer part kind of fits me from what everybody says. Now, Rob, let's first talk about that uh, that small dog you have at your place. You know. <sighs> He's just a big pussycat. He was putty in my hands. Simba the turncoat? (laughs) (laughs) He he and I are going to have a little chat uh, when I get back. And for the people that don't know who he was, Simba's a a Rhodesian Ridgeback. And I thought he was my buddy. He's about nine feet tall. (laughs) Yeah, and now he uh, seems to like you, Steve. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Did you drug him? Is that what it... What what, what did you do to him? No, I just have that crocodile Dundee way, you know? God. Anyway, seriously, Rob, you're actually, uh, a lot of people may not know, but uh, your company, Comavia, uh, is quite involved here with the people at Whitman Airfield. Yeah, actually, uh, we, we do, uh, Whitman uh, Regional Airport's one of our Comavia clients, and so we spent a good portion of the year getting ready for this big show, not just because it's EAA shows, but it's, or EAA show, but it's also a big deal for the airport. Uh, because we, of course, we handle all the social media work for the airport, and we built their blog. And uh, can I mention the Twitter feed, which is at Whitman Airport? There I you mean, go. maybe people will chase that. Sure. Uh, but of course, too, one of the reasons that we're really doing this is because we're trying to bring new business to the airport. Because uh, unfortunately, sometimes uh, in a community this size, when the show's not going on, people don't even know why they have an airport. But we have great facilities. We we have a, a possibility on a new flight training organization here. The the uh, air traffic system is not that busy, and uh, it's a great it's a great spirit uh, here that happens at uh, at Whitman Airport all year long. And all the organization that goes on here is that the purview of the EAA, or is, is Whitman involved in that obviously too? Well, pretty much for the week, uh, the uh, the airport is uh, is at this side of the airport where we are on the west side is is EAA's world. Uh, but, of course, uh, there, there's so many other people coordinating. I mean, uh, there are a, a significant number of airport staff that are on duty uh, most of the day and the night here to make sure that uh, everything operates right in case uh, something coughs on the runways or uh, any place else on the field. Now, more generally, we talk about your company, Comavia. Uh, this is just one of your clients here. But generally, what is it that your company does? Well, we, uh, we have a new slogan. It's called Leading Edge Media for the Aviation Industry. So we spend an awful lot of time promoting airports and aviation businesses. Uh, we handle communications for uh, a number of the uh, associations as well. We work with the General Aviation Airports Coalition uh, out of Washington. Uh, and so we're, we're tied, uh, you know, we try to be tied into some of the, uh, the politics and the uh, influence of, of our industry, but then also we try to represent businesses all over the, the country to help them, uh, uh, you know, gather more customers, and, and that's really what it's all about. And I guess in these tight financial times, particularly here in the USA, I mean, you know, making sure that uh, businesses have their presence, you know, out there and known is, is vital. Well, it is, and and the, the the good news is that we have all these new tools. I mean, we have Twitter, we have blogs, we have podcasting, uh, we have Facebook. Uh, but what those bring with them are some challenges too for organizations that aren't quite sure how it all fits because it's not like simply typing up a press release and sending it out and saying we're done. 
these these are much more interactive uh, kinds of tools, but they bring some incredible benefits because there are people out there that are willing to tell your story for you, as we saw when we met all the GE people. We love to do that kind of stuff. Yep. And, and I can tell, tell folks we've uh, had the privilege of being here, Robin, watching you in action this week. You are very, very slick at marketing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you do a great job. So, uh, and, Steve, and, have you ever, uh, you know, maybe we should work together. It's with working well, isn't it? Working well. crazy down under, guys. You, you no, should. We've never you quite should. been to Australia yet. Maybe we could... We could do something. For a little business meeting there, yeah. uh, and we could have something, you know, maybe a nice lunch uh, somehow. What would the lunch uh, consist of? Oh, kangaroo steaks. Oh. Hold it, hold it. You're going to network your synergies and crosshatch your Pacific brooch and... <laughs> I don't know. Never. Yeah. Mind. It's called a junket, people. It's called a <laughs> junket. junket. A business trip, a business trip. A, yes, we're going to do all those. Well, Rob, uh, tell us where we can find uh, all of your many and varied sites online. <laughs> Comavia.com. It's C-O-M-M-A-V-I-A.com. And, of course, there's Jetwine.com. And, uh, of course, there's the Airplane Geeks. Dot com and then world's, of course, see, world's we were second never, best podcast on earth. Well, yeah? We were never actually asked, like some people I know, to be even remotely involved with the plane crazy down under people. Not that I would, even if I were asked, Steve. No, but seriously, it's it's been so neat to meet all these people and and you you do form relationships in ways that you never could if you only podcasted or only tweeted. It's so great to hang out with you guys. Uh, for a week, and I just wish you had brought some fresh laundry, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are getting a little bit uh, uh, wafters here, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> seriously, Rob, I mean, you showed us great hospitality this week, and we have known you for a couple of years now online, and we've had a lot of great conversations, and uh, we really do appreciate you put us up at uh, put us up in your office and let us take over the place for a few you, days. You mean a camp camp jet wine? Camp jet wine, that's right. Yep. Yes, and, and we'll be uh, reinstated. Well, well, we're going to see how the relationship works between Simba and uh, Grant when he comes back. Well, I think he tried to eat Grant at one point, but uh, this I, is good. I, I actually, I actually, told, I actually instructed him to do that. That's well, the, the the depth of our relationship. Rob did say that you know we've got enough that we can probably afford to lose one out of three or four, and I'm getting the feeling that I'm going to be that one. Yeah, how's those stitches going, mate? Yeah. 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 Hey, it's been really. And thanks great. to your lovely wife Nancy as well for looking after us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, she she enjoyed it. Rob, Mark, we'll talk to you again online from the thanks, other side guys. of the planet. See ya. Thanks, mate. Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation advertiser.com.au Want something different to talk about on Monday? Get yourself a Jet Ride gift pack and tear through the skies at 900 Ks with Australia's ultimate jet fighter experience. Be top gun for the day. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1300 554 876 Would you like to podcast with the Lifestyle Pod Network? We are Australia's fastest growing podcast network, and we're looking for people who love to podcast. You get great benefits like a free blog, podcast hosting with unlimited bandwidth, and a great community of podcasters to connect with. Find out more by visiting lpnhost.com.
Hi, this is Leo Laporte of This Week in Tech and the Twit Network. You know, we don't do any aviation podcasts, thank goodness. I wouldn't want to compete with Steve in Australia's premier aviation podcast, Plane Crazy Down Under. Well, we're down here in Arkansas, and I'm sitting in the den of a house that I'm very familiar with, and uh, perhaps to the chagrin of <laughs> the person I'm about to speak to. But uh, yeah, we're here, and I'm in the presence of two uh, people that are very important to me, and uh, people that helped foster my love of aviation and gave me a lot of uh, opportunities uh, when it came to flight training. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Bill and Erlene Hankins. Welcome. Hey. Hello there. Now, guys, we'll get to uh, talking uh, in a little while about how I came to be here and how I came to be. A lot of people want to know <laughs> how did you come to be in Arkansas of all places uh, doing your flight training we'll get to that in a little bit but uh, Bill uh, what I really wanted to talk about with you was your career in the Air Force you were a, an officer in the United States Air Force that's correct and you joined in 1963 63 let's talk about those times I mean that was right in the middle of, of the Cold War um, times were, were very different then and the big enemy I guess to the west at that time was was the Russians Mm-hmm. Can you describe the, the mindset of, of the time? What motivated people generally to join the service at that time? And do you think perhaps those motivations are any different these days? I would assume they are. When I was uh, in college at that point, the uh, draft, of course, was in full force. Uh, everyone who was in college with me had pretty much received some matter of deferment to remain in college instead of going to the military. And you knew that the second you walked out that some kind of military uh, service was inevitable. Uh, the recruiters for all the services were coming into the student center every day. And so uh, I think that's probably what motivated most to go in the service. We had the Cuban Missile Crisis at the time. We had all kinds of things like that going on in the world. So uh, I uh, went over and talked to the uh, Air Force recruiter, took the exams, and Suddenly, about four weeks later, I was in the military. So, accounting the Coast Guard, there's five branches of the military service in this country. Why, why the Air Force? What, 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 did, what was it that attracted you to the Air Force ahead of the other services? Well, I could say I like the uniform better. <laughs> but uh, seriously, uh, I, the Army didn't turn me on. Um, the Marines were one of those services that uh, uh, was just, I don't know, it was just not, not my kind of service. I didn't particularly like it on the water because I learned how to, I told I was told I had to learn how to swim. <laughs> but um, I just liked the Air Force. I liked what they did. I liked what they stood for. I did try initially for pilot and navigator training. But at the time that I took the exams, even though I passed them, uh, the Air Force wasn't looking for pilots and navigators. They had all they needed. So I simply took whatever was offered to me and went to officer training school and spent my time down there making me into a 90-day wonder, and when I got out, I'm a second lieutenant, and I go out and do what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, It took some, oh, probably six or seven years, and I got my, the big call to go to Vietnam. Actually, I was more fortunate than most. I wound up at a um, base in Taiwan called Ching Chuan Kang Air Base, or CCK, as we prefer not not to try to go through the whole name at one time. But I spent about two or three weeks out of each month in Vietnam itself because I had some forward operating locations down there that were attached to my command that I had to go down and make sure everything was going okay. So I got my taste of Vietnam, no, no doubt about that. I got back. I went into uh, a processing center and an induction center. Like I said, the graph was still going on. 
and after that became a squadron commander in Keister, Mississippi. And then following that, I volunteered for the um, Titan Missile Field. Well, I'll just stop you there. I wanted to touch on the recruiting side of, of things. When we look back, and for people of, of, of my generation, we were, you know, the as we were born, the Vietnam conflict was sort of coming to a close. How was it working in a recruiting centre at that time? I mean, the Vietnam War was obviously not a popular conflict. Um, well, what the, was that like? We ran into a lot of problems. Um, uh, see, a, a processing centre is not only enlistees that come in, but it was also... Uh, uh, draftees that came in to be examined. We had about four days or five days per month they were held over strictly for for draftees. And we had our usual stint of protest marchers around the front and uh, we had uh, many, many people that refused induction. Uh, they were read their rights at that point and then some, at some point later they're going to be coming to trial because they that's a, a chargeable offense. Uh, as a matter of fact, I testified a couple of times against some of the people that come up before me and refused induction, and they, I had to be called back to Rhode Island to testify in their court case against them. So obviously, I mean, these days the draft doesn't exist. There's a lot of uh, young men and women from this country and from, from my country going off to war. Do you find that the mood of the people or the mindset of the people is, is somewhat different? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell. Uh, the... Um, I know we don't have the protests that we used to have. I think that the people... See, when we came back from Vietnam, in my case, Taiwan, Vietnam, we had a significant uh, amount of ill feeling. It wasn't the soldiers' fault. It wasn't the military's fault. But a lot of civilians blamed us. We were the killers, the murderers of, uh, you know, women and children. Uh, today, however, the, the conflicts that we've got going on, the... Uh, People that come back from those, military that come back from those, are treated with a whole different uh, set of respect, or <laughs> respect at all in this case. It's really a changed attitude toward the military compared to this war to Vietnam. Yeah, Bill, you and I have sat in this den many times over the years and talked about various different aspects of Vietnam. Um, what sort of, I mean, did you ever get up to do much flying? I would think we've talked before about some times where you've perhaps um, found yourself in situations in C-130s or other aircraft you know, flying over the, the dangerous areas in Vietnam. Can you describe some of those? Well, I, uh, I was pretty much in a situation where I had to beg and borrow a ride. Most of the pilots uh, I knew uh, that were in direct support of Vietnam, so um it wasn't, I didn't go into the normal pasture service. I'd go down to uh, base ops, uh, find the pilots that were going somewhere, and if they were going to someplace I needed, I'd ask them if I could hitch a ride. Uh, I had um, one flight. I was due to go to Cameron Bay from the Trang, uh, from Tentran, from uh, Cameron. I was supposed to go to Clark Air Base in the Philippines, back to Okinawa, and then back to Taiwan. I uh, took the plane and Cameron, I got on the plane about three o'clock in the morning, and the pilot happily informed us that we had been diverted to pick up wounded in July, uh, even a more hot, bigger, a bigger hotspot than uh, than Da Nang was. And so we flew from Cameron to Da Nang, landed Da Nang. I thought, well, you know, hey, I'll get out of Da Nang and eventually get to Okinawa, everything will be fine. 
So I went to a, a room that they set up for visiting officers and was lying there hearing some <laughs> some popping uh, sounds about what sounded like about a mile and a half off. Asked some young airman, I said, what was that? And I wish I hadn't asked him because he told me it was a firefight on the, on the perimeter of the base. I was, very, I was ready to go almost anywhere at that point. <laughs> but uh, in, the, uh, in the plane, then coming, we had to fly from Da Nang to Chulai, Chulai into Saigon to drop off the medevac people. And as we were coming to Saigon, we got, uh, I had about, oh, eight to 10 101st Airborne Army guys sitting next to me. And the one sitting next to me got a bullet in his arm because the VC liked to lay in the flight path of the aircraft and just simply shoot upwards, hoping they'd hit the plane, hit something, hit something vital. Take pot shots. Take pot shots, that's, that's right. And they hit this guy next to me in the arm. Um, I don't, I don't think that, but they don't give Purple Hearts for being next to a guy that's been hit. <laughs> so, uh, at any rate, but yeah, I, uh, I flew in helicopters, OV-10s, O2 bird dogs. Um, that was about it. The, uh, I flew as a, as a member of the crew. I was the waste gunner in a small Huey helicopter. Uh, that was the only thing that was flying that was going the direction I was going. <laughs> and at, at 100 feet, you can count the people down there. <laughs> Must be pretty scary stuff. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. And you were in Vietnam for how long were you over there for? Eight, uh, 13 months. Now, early in the meantime, you're back at home. You're a teacher going through Teachers College, or had you graduated by this point? I graduated shortly before we were married, so I had a teaching position. Now, Bill's over there in Vietnam, and I think this has a lot of parallels to what's going on now because there would be a lot of wives, husbands, spouses going through the same sort of stress that I guess many people of your generation would have been going through. So can you describe for us, I mean, how was that for you at that time? Primarily the uncertainty, not knowing if he was in country, if he was in Taiwan, if he was in the Philippines, was he being shot at, was he getting some kind of fever, was he having proper housing? Did he have something to eat? And I'd have to get busy helping other wives or uh, dealing with my students to keep from thinking about those things 24-7. And it was good that there was the Mars radio system back then, and he could call me about once a month, and we could communicate, and I'd know for sure he was alive and well. We had an old-fashioned reel-to-reel recorder, and he would record a message for me, and include neat little gifts in the packets that he sent, <laughs> and then I would record something and send back to him. I um, got busy one time and sent him a Christmas tree, a live Arkansas cedar tree, <laughs> and a cake tin full of ornaments, and he and the guys in his particular housing area seemed to, to consider that something very special. And of course, there's so many regulations now, I couldn't do that. It'd have to be artificial. But it was a touch of home, and I just had to stay busy. I had to concern myself with what uh, had to be done at school. And then I worked at what's called family services, where we helped wives whose husbands were overseas and were in need of either everything from babysitting to extra clothing or even furniture from the family services center so you just you just adapt and you get up close and personal with your military family and do your thing and pray that they come home in one piece 
And as a military, I mean, family is an interesting word, isn't it? And um, I mean, you're a, I've known you a long time. You're a very, very independent person. But I think there is still that family aspect that it seems to be. I've spent a lot of time around you guys, and we've been to a lot of Air Force bases together. Uh, there seems to be a real family atmosphere, a real family aspect, particularly at times of conflict. Well, we're in such a unique situation in that we never know when our husbands are going to be sent TDY or even permanent change of station duties for over a year. So we have to rely on each other. We Each airbase is a community in itself. We have every service you could ever need. And if you avail yourself of these services, you're never left alone. And then we have our special family feeling, which is support within our neighborhood, within our organizations, such as the Family Services or the uh, Morale and Welfare Center. So it's kind of like you're your own city, your own community, and at the same token, you're welcome to leave the airbase and make friends otherwise, but you don't really want to because they share a common situation with you so you stay with your Air Force family. And if the worst happens and a spouse loses their husband or their wife over there in a conflict, that would be very important. Everybody would rally around, I imagine, to support that family. Big time. There are special parts of the military that um, there would be the announcement, people would come to your home, you would have all sorts of assistance from the government itself, you would have the morale officer come and he would assist you with making the arrangements and the military takes good care of their boys and their and their girls when something dreadful happens and they make sure that they get home, they make sure that they are uh, treated with the utmost respect and, and nothing that you need cannot be supplied to you at that time. And most of the time, you can't think because of the grief. So you have other people who are experienced in this situation, and they come in and they help you and lead you and guide you and support you. And it's a horrible thing, but at the same token, it even increases your family feeling because those people are there to help and guide. And we are in the town of Quitman, Arkansas, which is a very small community, a small rural community in um, central Arkansas. And uh, you spent many years teaching here in, in, in Quitman. Um, I imagine that you would know many of your former students, I guess, that have, uh, are now in the military and are perhaps in, in areas of conflict. Yes, yes. And uh, I still have grave concern for them. Most of them are kind enough to email me or contact me via Facebook and they come and see me when they get back safe and sound and give me some relief from the little bit of worry I have. So far, only five of the young men that were in my classes in Quitman have um, stayed longer than three years in the military. They seem to choose the three-year service, and then they come back and do school. But, yes, it's a concern, and uh, I cared enough about them that I like to keep up with them, and they're kind enough to... Um, contact me occasionally and let me know what they're doing. One of them just recently got married, and he has joined the National Guard, Air National Guard, so he can continue his work with U.S. Marshal Service, and that makes me extremely proud of him in that he's doing his military service as well as being in the Marshal Service because he can do more than one thing that way. But the, it was the military service that he did for six years that gave him the opportunity to get the schooling that he needed to become a U.S. Marshal trainee.
Okay, Bill, so now you've come back from Vietnam and you're looking for, obviously, a uh, another career path within the military and you happen across the uh, missile service at Strategic Air Command. Right. We, um, like, like I said, I got back to Rhode Island, spent my years standing up there in, in the recruiting end of things, went down to Keesler Air Force Base, became a squadron commander, and it just wasn't what I wanted to do. And so I looked in the book to find out what was available found out the Titan Missile Service was really crying for people. And so I wrote them a very nice letter. I wrote a very nice letter to the um, Military Processing Center in Randolph Air Force Base in Texas. And <laughs> within about four days, I was accepted. It was one of those things that, boy, they wanted people bad. I proved that. But, yep. uh, and uh, you were holding what rank at that time? Captain. Captain, yep. And the um, I had to have... Uh, my security clearance upgraded from uh, uh, top secret to top secret crypto because they're going to be handling the classified documents in the missile. And once I got in the missiles, we made the move in about three months from Keesler. Got here, I spent about, uh, gee, seemed like I was about three months in uh, Wichita Falls, Texas, and again in uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base, California for the various, um, the first half of the, of the training was the missile system itself, which in itself was a fairly huge thing. Once we got out to Vandenberg, that was the security end of things. Now let's let's have a talk about the that initial stage of training. That would be intense, I imagine. I mean, those Titan II missiles um, would obviously be very very complex pieces of machinery. Well, we had a four we had a four man crew: uh, the commander, the deputy commander, the BMAT, and the MFT. And uh, Bill, just just describe that, that jargon for those who don't know. Well, the BMAT is the Ballistic Missile Analyst Technician, and the MFT is a mis- Missile Facilities Technician. What we did is a, you're absolutely right, it is a complex system, multi-million dollar system. And there are all kinds of maintenance people at the base that take care of the various things that are going to have to, that may go wrong, may be a problem. The job, main job of the missile crew, of course, is obviously to fire the missile in, in case of necessity. But rather than to try to teach you what was wrong, they taught you how to find out what you need to look for to determine what was wrong. Not to fix it, but rather to be able to look up and be able to tell them, the, the maintenance crews what needed to be done. So we spent some, seemed like about nine weeks, going over literally hundreds of manuals. The tests that we had were, here's what's wrong. These are the lights that are showing. Where do you go to look it up? And find out what's wrong. That's not as easy as it sounds. You, you, you've always heard that going to a college and having an open book exam is a real easy thing to do. This open book exam was not an easy thing. Then once you uh, got to uh, Vandenberg, that's when you went through the security training. And we had exams there, which by the way con- would continue when we got back to our air base. We had a 30-question exam about once every, oh, four or five days. And once every fifth alert when we got back to the, to the missile base, that the passing rate was 100%. You couldn't miss anything. Now, if you don't think taking tests, that, that puts a tad of pressure on you, <laughs> you you're, you're thinking wrong. Because you, go, you, miss one, you, you miss one question, you suddenly go into remedial training and they'll take you off alert. That's how important all this information was. 
Now, these missile missile silos here in Arkansas, it's interesting. Obviously, they were put um, in areas away from major population centres like, yeah. I guess, the East Coast and dotted around all around this area. And if you fly over this area, you can still see several of these missile silo sites today. Now, obviously, they're long decommissioned now and been filled in, but you can still see where they are. And one of the things that always interested me was they're just sitting inside farms and rural areas in you know, you can be driving up past a farmhouse and alongside as a driveway, and that, that lead up to the missile silo. Right. As a matter of fact, we had some <laughs> we had some interesting situations. Sometimes there would be uh, one crew, as I recall, had a um, a truckload of individuals. They had gone in town and basically had a nice, fun time on Saturday night. Unfortunately, when they came back, they were a little bit too inebriated, shall we say, to stay on the right road. So they took the road to the missile silo. The security crew spent about the next two hours trying to convince them that they had not in fact put a fence across the road that took them back home <laughs> but uh, we had a um, we had a unique situation some of the some of the farmers weren't happy about our missile silo being in their backyard more or less but um, it wasn't one of those situations where anybody really got that upset about it you had to have them you knew it was for the safety of the United States and so you do it but you were based at Little Rock Air Force Base, as I understand right. it. So you would your typical alert would start at Little Rock? Right. We, uh, uh, it was called pre-departure briefing. We'd, uh, we'd go over there at 6. At the time, I didn't realize there were two 6 o'clocks in a 24-hour period. <laughs> but um, we'd go in at 6 a.m. We received a weather briefing uh, along with, oh, at least a half a dozen other various briefings that we had to have. And we were given code words to take with us to the missile site because we had to have the code as an entry word to get in. And um, each one of us, each crew, and like I said, it was a four-man crew, whichever site we were with our home site, mine was one called 3749, or we shortened it to 49. Uh, we drove out there every day. Uh, some, missile, some missile bases like McConnell shunted their people back and forth by uh, helicopter. I did that about twice when the weather was bad, but uh, we just drove back and forth. When when we got finished with our tour of duty, the other crew would show up at about oh, 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we would have our changeover. Uh, we'd go through all the documents, tell them whatever they needed to know, whatever they, we needed to know they'd tell us, and then we they signed off and we took off and they took over. And and an, you pull a, sh- well, a shift, I guess, an alert. Yeah, 24-hour um, shift. 24-hour shift, yep. Yeah. Um, the missile itself... Um, can you, I guess, are you, I guess most of that stuff's perhaps declassified these days. There was a time when we were sitting here in this den where we probably couldn't have talked about that, but um, can you describe vaguely some of the dimensions and some of the capacity that this, well, the, this the, missile had? The missile silo itself was two parts. We had the control center, which was three levels. We had a cableway, they called it, uh, which went from the control center through the blast doors and out to the missile, which was the second part. Uh, it gave us a, um, a certain safety valve because at all times there was a positive airflow through the controller center, through the control center, out the long cableway, and in the missile itself. So no noxious vapors could get, a, get out of the silo and back to us. Also, we had these two doors that I referred to earlier as blast doors, uh, uh, three and a half ton doors each. Looked like a giant safe vault, a bank vault door. Uh, great large hydraulic pins held them in place. So if the missile had ever, actually ever blown up, chances are we might have been scratched a bit, I guess, but I think we'd have made it. 
When you talk about noxious gases, what sort of gases did you have to be careful of? I believe they're quite lethal. Well, there are a couple of them. Uh, the fuel was unsymmetrical dimethyl hydrazine, and the, ox- ox- the oxidizer was nitrogen tetroxide. The two, when the two came together, they were known as being hyd- hypergolic. And then when they came together, there is no fuse, there is no ignition. It's just when they come together, they explode. That in itself, if you can figure that it's going to send this heavy missile where it needs to go by a simple explosion, it's got some real oomph behind it. The tetroxide, if you were to breathe it, it would mix with the, with the moisture in your lungs, or if it got on your skin, it would mix with the sweat on your skin and turn to nitric acid. You are not going to live very long with nitric acid in your lungs. The uh, unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine, or UDMH as we used to shorten it, that simply would get on your skin and, and absorb and when it did, it just simply poisoned your blood, simple as that. So, yeah, noxious, noxious would be a, a rather mild term for what they, what they were. And, Bill, what about some of the other facilities that you had there for survival purposes? Well, we have what we used to refer to as gee whiz information. We had a 250-gallon water tank with fresh water, so chances are we weren't going to go thirsty anytime soon. Uh, we had a diesel generator, a backup generator, a 350 kilowatt generator. When you put that in perspective, you you talk about a a 20 kW generator would be enough to uh, run most houses. So how big is a 350 kilowatt generator? It's pretty good size. It's a lot of volts. Uh, we have to keep that going. Uh, we had a hundred thousand gallons worth of diesel fuel, which should have kept us running for quite some time. Then we had over the silo itself. We had a door that covered, it was called a closure door. I never did quite understand that, but closure door anyway. That thing weighed 780 tons. 780 tons. 780 tons. You're not going to you're not gonna go out there, pick it up, and throw it away. <laughs> so um, anyway, those are just some of the things that we had. Um, that control center was completely self-contained. We, we had uh, kitchen facilities, sleeping facilities on the third floor. We had the launch control system and everything on the second floor. And along with radios, of course. And on the bottom level, we had the controls for all this, all these, uh, all this equipment that was working. So we uh, we had a pretty good. We had a little home away from home, as it were. We've all seen on the TV uh, pictures of uh, missile silos, which I assume are Titan twos. I'm just thinking of that 780 ton door. Presumably, it comes up and slides away on a track. You wouldn't want to be in its way. No, as a matter of fact, there are two large uh, stop backstops to the to the door. And on the rear of the door, there are two extremely large shock absorbers. I mean, huge shock absorbers. And they, if they had not been there, if the door would have opened, and it would hit those backstops and probably just take the backstops with it. But this thing was coming at those backstops with a fairly good speed. Uh, you, you don't have to be going very fast when you weigh 780 tons. So the, uh, the idea was that we had to figure some way to slow the door down once it got to the end. I want to come back to something about the missiles in a minute, but uh, at this point, Erlene, you're back in Arkansas. You're back in a local town here and back teaching, so Bill is pretty close to home. So, I mean, you would probably, I guess, mixed a lot more with the crews and, and, and some of the people he worked with at that time. Can you describe that sort of point in your life? Well, he was fortunate in that all the members of his crews were fine people. We would take recreation activities together. We had cookouts. We'd come to the lake. When they had off time, 
we would um, take care of each other's business if needed. We had only two crew members that had children, so we didn't have much to do in the way of sharing babysitting chores, and our cat didn't require that much care. So, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah, but they were very close, and because they shared such responsibility, the wives as a whole felt it was their job to do special activities and or fun things when they were not on alert to give them what's called downtime to really get them rested and ready to go back and face the the situation that they faced. And Bill constantly said he had his finger on the button, and actually there wasn't a button, but that's okay. That's what we're going to talk about in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) So it was was nice, but again, I had my teaching career. I uh, was teaching at schools in North Little Rock and made friends with women who were also teaching whose husbands were members of other crews. So again, there's the Air Force tie, the Air Force family feeling, and um, I didn't mind him being gone because he was only gone one night at a time about every three days. And I kind of, once I knew his schedule, uh, I had problems keeping from asking him questions since I'm a curious person. But after he explained to me about two or three times that he could not tell me those things, and I, I let it go, and that's fine, that's his business. And he did such a good job at it and was happy at it, so I said, Good for you. <laughs> Let's talk about the button. <laughs> there isn't one, is there? There's no button, no. Everybody thinks that you got a button. What you have is a key, and the um, there are two of them. And despite what most people think, well, you, you know, you just turn a couple of keys and boom, the missile goes off. No, it doesn't. You've got to have both keys turn simultaneously. And so your deputy has to turn one, you turn the other. But even doing that... It's not going to fire anything unless you have gotten a signal from the headquarters that's going to allow that missile to be enabled. So it's a, there, there, there are more safety features that would keep anybody from firing a missile that, uh, that it, it, it was really very safe, very safe indeed. Can we talk in, I guess, vague terms about how the order would come down? I mean, you are obviously um, in constant communication with your headquarters who was in constant communication with people further up the chain. Let's say the worst happened, they, de- they decided they're going to have to launch these things. How was that initiated? Generally, we would get a warble tone. It's hard to describe what that is, but it's a very distinctive uh, sound. Then we'd hear, Skytrain, this is flag down. With an alpha, kilo, tango, tango, tango message in three parts. Break, break. At that point, then, we had about uh, three or four minutes to copy the message, decode it before the rest of the message came through. If the rest of the message, when it came through, was to be a go message, then we would launch. Just that simple. Now, you've, on more than one occasion, described to me that you consider this to be the highlight of your career and a point in your life where you perhaps were doing the most that you could in your capacity as an Air Force officer to contribute to the defence of the United States. Yeah. How would you characterise, and some people may find this chilling, but if the order had come down, how much hesitation would there have been? And, I mean, I guess you were trained not to hesitate. Oddly enough, the, the training that we went through in California, which I described as at the security training. The first, you were asked this question constantly. If the order comes down to launch, can you do that? Now, there is a, there's a big difference between you telling somebody in just a, a, a friendly setting, yeah, not a problem, uh, as opposed to suddenly you've got the order in your hand and you've got to turn the key, what are you going to do? I used to, I used to joke. <laughs> it never was really true, but... Uh, I tell people, I call my wife, 
get her to put the cat in the car and come out here and what she would say if I'd launch. <laughs> but uh, seriously, the this is going to sound strange. But then again, I know I do that all the time. But I always had the thought that if I've got this order in my hand, that most of the things that I knew and cared for were probably gone. Because the Air Force, the Air Force, at least we were always taught, we would never make a preemptive strike. Since that was the case, then we would have been struck at that point. And if my wife and my family and the land that I love was gone, turn the key and go. Yep. You can feel like glow, you said to me on more than one occasion. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's a huge thing to contemplate, isn't it, really? I mean, t- to think that things might have come to that. And, um, I mean, you know, we're lucky that it didn't. Was there ever a time during your stint where you thought, gee whiz, this is it? I, uh, I was never on duty during that time. There, was, there were times, I, I won't deal with them specifically, but there were times that we would be in an elevated state of alert um, the Cuban Missile Crisis was one of them. Um, the, um, if you took a parallel between now and my time, I would guarantee you, had I done, I'd been on missile alert when the uh, World Trade Center was bombed or hit by aircraft, I would have guaranteed you at that point we'd have been on, if not, we would have been at least on a high state of alert. We would have been ready to go. In the old style terminology, that would have been DEFCON 1. They've changed that whole uh, series of, of codes now, but uh, we would have definitely been ready to go to a point like that. But it happened four or five times, never, never like I said, when I was on duty. Um, those are heart stoppers. Sitting on the other side of the fence, Erlene, I mean, did you ever, I mean, was that something that would always sit in the back of your mind that perhaps this was a possibility that this sort of thing might happen? I mean, what was it like living at, at those times with, with that sort of possible threat from the Russians or wherever it was going to come from? And you knowing, of course, that Bill was directly involved at the pointy end of that. I was proud to know he was, because if they were going to pick on us, I'm the kind of person that thinks we're going to pick back. Yep. So, yes, I had it in my mind on occasions, but the secret of being an Air Force wife is to stay busy, stay concerned with family, stay concerned with, like, I had the luxury of having a profession, so I stayed busy with my profession and tried not to dwell on it, but it was always a part of our thinking. It was always there in case, but at the same token, we had to be protected. His job was one of the important ones for protecting people. It was better than him going up in an aircraft and being shot down like they were in Vietnam. So I just kind of accepted it and was proud of him and how well he served during that time. And I guess when you think about it, there's still a lot of missiles on alert even now as we speak, aren't there? I mean, I guess forces have been drawn down, but there's there's still that readiness now. Yes, and I'm Uh, very proud of the people in the areas like Alaska that are constantly on alert watching out for us because I don't trust some of the other countries of the world to keep their heads about them. Yeah, well, I think uh, there's many of us that would agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Bill, let's talk about one other interesting aspect of being a uh, missile crew commander and being a part of a Titan II missile, and that's the Operational Readiness Inspection, the ORI. (laughs) Your favorite thing you've described to me in glowing terms how much you enjoyed this over the years. Uh, we used to have a uh, we used to have a saying: "Sack's idea of reward was a lack of punishment." <laughs> um, the ORI was always a an unscheduled situation, at least as far as we were concerned. And from the time the ORI hit, 
in the time they went, you knew that you had to do everything by the book, by the numbers. Not that we didn't do it anyway, but when you, when you had somebody looking over your shoulder, that in itself was, uh, was enough to make you a little edgy. But uh, I pulled at least two trainer rides. Uh, I'll explain. They, uh, we had missile uh, control center simulators. And the crew would have to go in there about once a month and pull a, a what they call a missile check ride. Uh, we would actually go through all the way through launch. And I pull a couple of those for a uh, for a couple of RRIs. Sometimes they'd come out to the air, uh, to the missile silo and check. But um, I'm proud to say I did my job well, and I didn't get written up. As a matter of fact, we always passed them. If you if you got through a missile check ride with a stand board or a uh, or our crew. Uh, and you came out with no errors, you got what was known as an HQ. Uh, and I have the privilege of having two HQs. <laughs> so that was high-quality high quality performance. Now, the um, <clears throat> one of the biggest jokes in SAC is when the uh, the people from the, uh, the <laughs> yeah. teams turn up and you say? <laughs> they say, we're happy to have you. And the, the, the inspector always says, we're glad to be here. And the base commander says, we're happy to have you. Two greatest lives in the Air Force. <laughs> And they used to wear a particular scarf, I believe. A yellow one, was it? Yeah, the yellow-throated backstabbers, we used to call it. No, <laughs> no that, was, that wasn't the ORI. The, um, we had uh, a, an instructor crew which wore red scarves, and the st- standardization evaluation on the standboard crew wore yellow. The, um, we used to kid the, uh, the ORI crew all came dressed in black, <laughs> sort of to, be- to befit their presence there. <laughs> But the, um, we would get at least one stand board a month and one to two uh, uh, instructor rides a month. And were you ever privy to, had you launched, where these missiles were targeted at? I mean, if you wanted to know that, would you have been told that? Or was that not if something you, that you were aware you, of? If you wanted to know, you could find out. All the information was kept, uh, kept there. I never really cared. Um, as far as I was concerned, one location was good as another. I figured somebody out there knew exactly where this missile was targeted, and it was targeted for a reason. So hey. Yeah. And uh, these days, the uh, Titan II uh, forces have been all decommissioned, as I understand it. That's right. Now all the Titan sites are gone. All, all fifty-four of them. Right. And they were here in Arkansas. Were they in any other state as well? They were eighteen in Arkansas. 18 in Kansas and 18 in, in New Mexico. And I guess in addition to that too, uh, there is a base up at Blytheville, Eka Air Force Base, uh, which is now closed, which also had B-52s on it, so there was quite a sizable force. Well, I see uh, Little Rock, where I was stationed for missiles, uh, at the time was a B-52 base. Had been a B-52, B-50, B-58 base. The missiles came in about the time of the B-58 to B-52 switchover. By the time I got there, uh, SAC was only a contingent on the rock, and it, it had been turned into a MAC. Uh, that's not the current terminology. That was military airlift command, but that's what came in. We were just simply a satellite unit. And C-130s, uh, the, uh, the standard operating equipment down there at uh, Little Rock these days, in fact, I understand it's um, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, training facility that is correct. in the United States Air Force. That yeah. is correct. And so what year did you finish up with uh, with the missile forces? I finished up in missile service in uh, 74, 75. 74. Okay, now um, just before we finish up here, 
uh, on the Air Force career, you then went overseas again to England. Yes. Took England by storm. <laughs> More or less. And were they ever the same again? <laughs> no, they, were, they never were. Um, the one that took England by storm was Erlene. She taught over there. And uh, that, that, of course, may, may not cement foreign relations, but she took care of us real well. So uh, you've both jetted off to England. I believe you took your uh, your treasured green Toyota pickup truck, Betsy Green, with you. Is that right? I surely did. I couldn't go anywhere without my Betsy Green. <laughs> now, were you aware at the time that, of course, uh, you know, in the Commonwealth, we actually drive on the correct side of the road, and that might have caused issues? Well, with so many English and Scottish ancestors, it was like I was back home. It was no problem for me, even with a a truck that had the steering wheel on the wrong side. (laughs) I managed to do several extra trips with my Toyota, and um, a lot of people learned to recognize it on the roads home from the different uh, schools that I taught at, and I would get waves, and every Friday I'd take a different road and try to see more villages and and participate in some of the things like thatching the roofs and all sorts of interesting things that go on in a country that's about 100 years behind everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> it was an interesting experience, and I would go again in a heartbeat if I could live there long enough to see the rest of the castles, palaces, and ancestral homes that I didn't visit while I was there. My theory was if, you see, if you've seen one castle, you've seen them all. <laughs> no, they're all different. <laughs> <laughs> that actually reminds me of uh, some of the comments <laughs> when you came to Australia. Well, same one koala, you've seen them all. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. Yeah, well, it probably is, actually. <laughs> you had a wonderful time in Australia, as a matter of fact. Your, your family made us feel very welcome. And, um, went way out of their way. To went way out of their way to take care of us, and it was most appreciative. Um, you were going to get to the point of how you got here in the first place. Well, just before we talk about that, briefly, you, you did a few years in England. Uh, which bases were you at in England? I was at the same one, RAF Upper Haven. And uh, then you came back to the United States and you retired from the Air Force not long after that? That's correct, 1984. Okay, so 1984, you've uh, then uh, moved, uh, well, you're back here in uh, central Arkansas. You've had five years of peace and then I arrived. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> that was not one of our better days. <laughs> No, we, uh, we decided it was a mutual decision. She was going to refuse to cook my meals if I didn't agree to it. <laughs> but we needed, we needed something in our lives. I'm not sure what we got, but <laughs> no, nah, that's just too much. We, we decided to get a foreign exchange student. And we decided on, on one that at least spoke close to English. So we got Australian, and young little Stevie Fisher came into our lives. Yes, I... A uh, rather considerably slimmer Steve Fisher and uh, all of 17 years old. But he did not understand that driving over here was the right side of the road. <laughs> but had a good time, and he went back. He stayed here, what, how long did he stay here, about six months? Six months the first time, yeah. 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 And then he came back. Something, pro- Of course, he, he and his family invited us over here, over into Australia, rather. And uh, when we got over there, we decided that we knew that he could not come to college here because of, you know, immigration status and all that sort of thing. So he comes back to the United States, and I bought a little Cessna 172. And then we gave him, we let him have flying lessons. You spent, uh, did you spend a year that time? Yeah, it was six months, and I came back again the year okay. after that, yeah. 
And uh, I think we took you finally all the way through the instrument training, didn't we? Yep. Yep, now let's talk about that plane, Cessna 4223 Quebec. Sadly, no longer with us, unfortunately. It was uh, taken from us in a tornado up at uh, North Little Rock. But uh, we had some fun times in that plane. As uh, 172s go, that was a sweet airplane. Yep, yep. As OIC, owner in charge, (laughs) (laughs) and as the flight attendant, I made sure we had drinks, food, and let Steve do most of the flying so Bill wouldn't get a hold of the yoke and get us in trouble. (laughs) We had to cut that other yoke out on the right hand side, didn't we? Yes, we did, didn't we? (laughs) We had to latch it. (laughs) No, it was great. We could get in the plane and just go anywhere we wanted to. We loved to go to Mississippi. We went to Louisiana. We just had a good time, and having that plane was wonderful. You spoke of this as being a sweet aircraft. It was, but... Even sweeter after the stuff we hung on it. We, uh, I bought a storm scope, as you remember. Yep. Uh, I bought one at the time was, uh, of course, Lorans were still going on then. At the time, the, the best Loran out there was a North Star. Mm. That would take you anywhere you needed to go. Now, of course, they got GPS, which far outstrips the old Loran system. Yep. But with that Loran and storm scope, we had people remember would would step inside the. What the devil is this? <laughs> yeah. It's a storm scope. What's the devil in the storm scope? <laughs> yeah. But uh, we had some good times. We made some good trips, and uh, hey, it, it worked out very well for us. Yep. yep. It's handy having your own living-in pilot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh, if, it was... if you could ever wake him up. <laughs> <laughs> we may make that an edit point, folks, now. <laughs> <laughs> Promise him a meal, and he'll go anywhere. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, um, look... I, it's been a fascinating interview. I've been going for nearly an hour. I really appreciate you uh, spending taking the time to share some of those uh, some of those memories with us. I wanted to thank you both publicly on my show for giving me the opportunities that you gave me. Uh, it really means a lot to me, and it's why I keep coming back here to to visit with you. You are my second family, and we've spent a lot of time here in the den in this house, uh, you know, sharing meals and having a great time. And uh, I just wanted the both of you to know how much I appreciate that. You are more than welcome. And we're proud of what you've made of yourself and what a beautiful family you have. So you've done well. Oh, thank you. So, Bill and Erlene Hankins, thanks for joining us. You're most welcome. You're most welcome. Hi, this is Max Flight. This is Milford from Flight Time Radio. You can catch Grant and Steve each week on the Airplane Geeks podcast with their Australia Desk Report. Over on our podcast, Steve and Grant send in a bi-weekly update that covers flying in the Southern Hemisphere. Our listeners look forward to the Flying Down Under segment for the great interviews and a taste of aviation life from another point of view. www.airplanegeeks.com If you get a chance, visit flighttimeradio.com to learn a little about our radio show and podcast. Well, I've interrupted the show long enough, so let me turn all you plain crazies back over to the guys and their usual outstanding content. Cheers from America. I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium, and you're listening to Plain Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. And so there you go. I tell you what, guys, um, some really interesting information there. Actually, Bill said to me, you know, well, nobody's going to want to hear this. And well, actually, I think that's uh, <laughs> there's some real gold in there, some real interesting oh, yeah. information. And, um, you know, this show is a show that concentrates on, um, you know, Australian and, and Kiwi aviation. But uh, given that we were over in the States, this is a story that uh, that I really wanted to get. Uh, you know, Bill is um, someone that I know better than most people. Uh, he's a fierce patriot. Like he said there, if, if the order had come to launch, basically, well, you know, he would have launched without a, without hesitation. 
Yeah, because everything else would already have been gone because he firmly believed that it would have been a retaliatory strike, not a preemptive strike. Yep. And uh, one thing I enjoyed out of this was uh, the description of how they went about launching was really well captured in that movie War Games, a very classic Matthew Broderick movie but uh, from the 80s. But, yeah, ex- that that launch complex that they have in the the start the opening scenes of that movie is just exactly as he described it yeah i mean you know you think back to that time if you want to look at another movie that's um apparently pretty close to uh, the way things really were back at that time in the in the 60s uh there's a movie called uh, a gathering of eagles which is an old black and white movie from the 60s which uh basically covers the the life of a um of a, of a commander within strategic air command at that time uh it's one of bill's favorite movies unsurprisingly although it doesn't so much deal with the missile service it deals more with the B-52s and such like. But even when I was living in Arkansas and that was, uh, you know, at a point in history where the Cold War was uh, really drawing to an end. I mean, they had another Air Force base up in the north of the state, uh, Eker Air Force Base at Blytheville, uh, yep. which is sort of over near Memphis, that sort of way. It's it's closed down now, but that was a B-52 base. And those aircraft were on constant alert, even at that time. They had a squadron in the air, squadrons in transit, and a squadron on the ground ready to go at a moment's notice. And, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty chilling in a way to think that for, you know, 40 or so years that the world lived in that in that state actually it would have been interesting to get his comments on uh, the, the 55 movie strategic air command that was more b36s and 47s rather than f- 52s but same kind of thing that was jimmy stewart mm. that was all about the bombers and being away from home and on call and never knowing where you're at and uh, you know it's uh, what i was trying to draw there was uh, when we were talking about his time in vietnam as i was trying to draw a parallel between the way things were back then when you know the troops were being sent off to a to a foreign land to, to fight in that war and obviously there's there's parallels with the way things are today with with troops from this country and you know from the united states going across there to afghanistan and to iraq and places like that so that's the sort of simile i was trying to draw there so you know i, I hope i was successful in doing that in that interview but i really want to thank bill and erlene those as i said in that interview I consider them my second family and they've provided a lot of opportunities for me, a lot of experiences. We've been around to a lot of Air Force bases and, and I've been very privileged uh, through them to be able to, you know, to see and experience a lot of things that might not otherwise have had the chance to do. So, uh, you know, it's an important part of my backstory. So I hope you enjoyed that interview, folks, and, uh, you know, prove Bill wrong. I think a lot of people will have enjoyed that. <laughs> It was good. All right, Baz. So uh, as we uh, move to close out this episode, let's have a quick talk about Oz Runways and how that's going for you. I note that there's an update uh, just come through. Uh, yes. Uh, well, the update just come through is just the uh, release of the new August 25th Ursa and uh, DAP. And that's just a database update. Uh, but it's going out to a lot of people and we can definitely see the hit in uh, our server usage when whenever those things go out. Uh, the Oz Runway has just been, you know, it's just been amazing. Um, when we did version one in December, we got a fair amount of users and that was very useful. But now adding the, the moving map in uh, 2.0, it's just gone completely uh, crazy. Uh, <laughs> so many people using it. So it's a real big success. And you know, we're, we're really thrilled with that, that we... Uh, Thanks to the people that have been uh, subscribing, that we can keep this going and uh, and keep it going for a long time because it's just such an incredibly uh, useful tool. I find uh, personally, I use it all the time, and uh, that's the, the feedback. You know, if you go on the forums, you hear what people have to say about it. It's uh, it's what people have been waiting for. So we're really happy uh, that we've been able to do that. And mate, while you're over there at uh, while you're over there at AirVenture, did you get a chance to talk to some to anybody else over there that's that's doing similar stuff? Yeah, I did. I talked to uh, a few people. Uh, one of the 
people I spoke to was uh, Espen Avionics. They are doing uh, uh, a product they call the Connected Cockpit, which is really an interface box that has uh, Wi-Fi in it and connects to their certified uh, avionics. And they've got this open protocol where people like us just can use it and, and push flight plans and th- that sort of thing into their uh, primary flight displays and, and multi well, multifunction display, really. That's where, that's where it's going to. And people are working on it. Of course, the, the big guys in the US or ForeFlight had a good chat with them, see what they're up to, and, and they're getting you know big now as well. And and they're, they're already basically the first people on this this Espen avionics system and it just shows that there's a big market for this and it's it's the, the way of the future and we're happy to be uh, to be right there at the beginning really yeah well, I love the bit with Aspen where you can go and do your planning on your system in this case ForeFlight was the one they were making a big deal about at the press release but hypothetically if you guys get your interface oh yeah do all do all the all the planning and everything on Oz runways get into the plane push the button and bang all the data is loaded into the uh, onboard GPS and uh, FMS you might say Exactly, and I need to uh, talk to Aspen. That's on my to-do list because <laughs> I, I don't know how many people are actually using Aspen Avionics here in Australia. So I have to see uh, how how much we prioritize this. But it's the way of the future, and I can see people like Dynon with their fantastic new Skyview system, which is a completely integrated moving map, FMS, uh, multifunction display, primary flight display, uh, completely modular. They're going to come up with this stuff as well, and. That's going to be a big market, of course, because there's a lot of people who have those systems here, either installed in factory LSAs or in their own home builds. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's where we're heading with this stuff. It's it's you know it's very exciting. Well, let's face it, Dyna Avionics were in Spaceship One. Hello. Yeah, exactly. They're good. <laughs> they're good enough uh, to go into space. And that's the great thing that you know we, we can use these uh, uncertified, uh, you know, experimental uh, equipment in our experimental aircraft or or the even the uh, LSAs that come out of the factory and and get this kind of capability that's just completely affordable. I mean, it costs less to buy. A complete the the small uh, Dynan D6 electronic flight system. It costs less to buy and install that than a single gyro instrument. If you have to either get a, a suction pump installed in your engine and get a suction instrument, that'll cost you about the same. Or if you buy one electric Horizon, that'll cost you about the same. So you know it's 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 a great to be flying these uh, LSAs and experimental aircraft where you can actually have this stuff and it's affordable. And uh, it's great for us as old runways because we'll be interfacing with all that. Uh, I have no doubt uh, once I bring those interfaces out, we'll be there. Well, that was that was a common theme that was coming up from a few of the people who are watching all the industry and and the reports and everything and talking to people around Oshkosh was that a, a common question being raised was, okay, so why am I paying these multi-thousand dollars to Garmin and people like that for stuff that I can get over here for multi-hundred dollars? What What's the value add? Why is the certification costing so much? Is it just a certification or is there something you're not telling us? Well, I think I think there's something they're not telling us. It's I mean, yeah. if you're the only the only one in that market, I mean, just look at the Garmin, just their updates that they've done to with the 430, 530 series is now the 650 and 750. That's, that's 12 years after the other ones were, the old ones were introduced and they've added slightly more capability and made it more expensive. Uh, a, a little birdie who's you know in the industry tells me, yeah, Garmin's just milking it uh, oh, yeah. because they're really the only the only one game out there with certified IFR GPS. There's not that many people who do that. 
Yeah. Um, so they're milking it while they can. You know, that's their they're just doing business. You know, that's capitalism. You you ask what the market can bear, but they're certainly going to feel it in their lower end of the market. Uh, things like the Era 500, the little uh, portable GPS, uh, small screen. Uh, why would you buy that when you can get more capability out of an iPad, uh, possibly to increase the accuracy with a $100 external GPS you put on the panel? Um, you know, it's a no-brainer, really. All right, well, that's excellent. So, Bez, once again, where can they find that, OzRunways? Uh, Oz, com, And, of course, just type OzRunways uh, in the Apple App Store. You get the download, you get one month free service uh, so you can try it all out no limitations at all and we're, we're sure you'll love it and of course no no good version of Oz Runways uh, is uh, complete without a knee doctor go with it knee doctor go with it we'll, we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll sell those on our site and uh, uh, just strip, strip the iPad to your knee and go flying Hey, does that knee dock work with an Android tablet? Not at the moment, no. It's, it's, right. I mean, they're all different size. So uh, we've designed it now for the iPad 1 and the iPad 2. And uh, once people actually start buying Android tablets in, uh, in numbers, then uh, we'll have to uh, look at modifying it. Meow. <laughs> there must be somebody else besides me and Grant that have got one, surely. Yeah. Not, not many, no. apparently. <laughs> once, you hear the, once you read the reports. Okay, excellent. All right, Grant, let's move on to shout-outs quickly. Let's kick off with Ryan Hothersall. He's uh, sent us a couple of shots of aircraft that he's got up on his uh, site there, which is www.ryanhothersall.net, and that will be in the show notes to make it easy for you. But I love that shot that he did of the ANA 787 that uh, looks like he shot it from the grassy knoll there, man. <laughs> yeah, it was a good shot. 787s, of course, is the uh, the aircraft at the moment. Everyone's trying to get shots of it. But just following some of Ryan's uh, Twitter stream and his Facebook stream, it looks like he's been spending some time up around uh, Washington State and uh, up there in Canada. So he's, he's had some time to uh, get up there and uh, have a look at the Boeing facility, obviously. And uh, as I said before, Ryan is uh, an extremely good photographer and gets uh, quite a lot of photos up there in airliners.net and myaviation.net. So, uh, yeah, just a big shout-out to you, Ryan. It's uh, great to have you on board as a listener. I think we've mentioned you a couple of episodes ago, but, uh, yeah, keep sending that stuff in, mate. We really appreciate it. Yeah, that's right, mate. And uh, the other shout-out we've got here is Rob Noonan. Uh, Rob sent us through some information about the Australian aerobatics pilots who are getting ready for the World Aerobatics Championships in Italy. Um, apparently, um, we've got uh, a couple of people representing Australia at the 10-day competition that commences at the end of this month, uh, August 31st, it kicks off. So uh, apparently, this is going to be the first time Australia has fielded a competitor at the World Aerobatic Championships since 2000. So I think that's pretty damn good. Yeah, and uh, flying the flag there for Australia will be uh, Paul Andronicu, the Australian uh, aerobatic champion, and also uh, triple Australian champion uh, Richard Wilcher. So uh, we really, really uh, wish those guys well getting out there and flying the Aussie flag there at the World Aerobatic Championships, and we uh, we hope that uh, they bring some good news stories back and we can interview them on the show soon. Yeah, looking forward to keeping up with that uh, as it unfolds at the end of the month and uh, see what we can bring forward for you guys. Okay, well, let's uh, wrap it up for me and Grant Pez. Have you got any shout-outs? Uh, yeah, i got one quick one. We just had the uh, RIO's uh, board elections for this year and some good new uh, blood in the uh, on the board. Uh, congratulations to Donald Ramsey. He's been uh, elected new for New South Wales, been pretty active on the forums and I reckon he's going to do a great job. Other great job, uh, South Australia, Ed Herring, uh, known well. He took my last uh, BFR, uh, CFI down at Goowa. He's going to be representing uh, Australia, uh, sorry, South Australia next uh, the, for the next two years. Uh, South Queensland, Miles uh, Brightcroach and John McEwen both uh, returned. Uh, new board member, Donoan Bill Kane for uh, Victoria, and also a new one by one vote uh, in WA, which is uh, 
Gavin uh, wow. Tobaven, who replaces uh, Ed Smith. I actually, you, you guys knew I, I, we didn't talk about it on the show, I would actually run and I just, uh, I failed miserably. Oh no. Uh, I, I was up against, and I should have known this, I was up against two CFIs that had been there for a long time and got absolutely decimated. Apparently, to be honest, I didn't do that badly, wouldn't have done that badly in preferences. Uh, a lot of people who uh, who voted for Ed apparently put me too, but uh, uh, there's, uh, there's no prizes for uh, second place or third place even. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it was great it was great to to do that and uh, i really uh shout out to the guys who, who did get on the board and uh, they're helping run a wonderful organization uh, keeping us all flying that's great news for our aos and for you baz better luck next time uh well it's it's good though that Baz, that you know i mean you've, you've not been in the country that many years but it's you know you've you're getting in and, and trying to make a contribution that way and i mean you know whether you win or not it's 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 the fact that you're showing that enthusiasm and, and wanting to participate in the community and uh you know we've talked a lot about the the community aspect in the u.s the way it works over there well we need more of that here so you know that's definitely uh, we need more people getting out and uh, you know making contributions like that it's 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 a good thing yeah so uh, so to, to make your own contributions you know go to your local flying club and Go to the events they organize uh, and and meet the great people that regularly go to these uh, to these events. And you know I'm still organizing them here. We still got Aeroscene going, and that's uh, picking up quite a lot now with uh, with Gary, who's uh, back into flying fixed wing. Uh, he still flies a chopper, of course, but he's got his uh, Ariel's uh, senior instructor rating back from years ago when he used these people in drifters, and uh, now he's doing it in Jabiru's. And that's really uh, helped us get out there and got lots of interest, lots of people coming to our events. And that's what you should do if you're in South Australia. Go to aerosene.com.au or find your local flying clubs and, and your, your schools and see what's going on and, and get out there and, and enjoy. Don't just fly on your own, fly with other people. All right, there we go. Well, I think we should uh, wrap that episode up folks i hope you've enjoyed us uh, our uh, recollections on air venture 2011 is it's, it's probably been a little bit rambly but uh you know to be honest as i've said quite a few times it, it really was an overwhelming experience we really want to thank all our sponsors and supporters again for uh providing us the the privilege of being there we certainly hope we can get over there again uh if not next year then uh, perhaps the year after and uh, if you have the money folks and you're able to get over there I, I highly recommend it it was just a wonderful celebration of aviation uh and we really recommend that you get over there and, and hopefully you'll get as much out of it as we did I'll second that. It may have been a rambling show, but that's because there was just so much going on and we were rambling all over the place while we were there. Now, uh, Baz, you're still working on the video from the uh, the flight in the Remos, so that'll be coming out soon, hopefully. That should be coming out real soon, yeah. I hope to get that up uh, next week. And uh, we've uh, got another episode coming up devoted to uh, Kiwi representation there at Adventure. Grant's uh, been working on that feverishly. There's uh, quite a lot of content and also the Bonanzas to Oshkosh one. So plenty more Adventure stuff to come. We hope you enjoyed this show. We'll be back soon with another episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. But until then, we'll just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. Especially when it's been up and over and down to Oshkosh. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast.
kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Ready to go, Grant? Three, two, one, and we're live. Hey, what episode is this, by the way? Oh, 73. That's probably why I wrote 73 at the top of that planning sheet. I'm thinking yeah. you could have written 73 there I for a good reason, brilliant. but I'm not I am brilliant. sure. I don't know, man. I don't know. You could be trying to, um, you know, anyhow. Uh, I, I was on the same flight to Chicago as you guys. Yeah, I mean, sorry, Steve, what are you on about? I, we oh, met wait. at the uh, boarding lounge for the American <laughs> Airlines flight. Oh, did we? Dude. <laughs> Where did we bump into you then? LAX. Oh, we bumped into LAX. God, what a dick. Oh, lucky I wasn't recording that. <laughs> oh, this is Steve, fully recovered from his trip. Yeah. Inside of the world. Well, let me record that. We were afraid that I wasn't going to make the connection, but I did. Dude, you were so freaking tired. You even slept in the middle of those terrible seats. <laughs> I didn't sleep at all. I, he wasn't asleep. He was asphyxiated. Yeah, I, I looked back and there's the head throwing back. Oh, Steve mate. Maybe it was so traumatic. <laughs> Quick Google search. Yeah. <laughs> Sprung. <laughs> it's, it's what's, what's down, down under, under that, that counts. counts. Oh, that was bad. <laughs> we yeah. need to do that a bit better. <laughs>